Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Our coverage continues 9-11, 20 years later. I'm Steve Kathan in New York. We've been visiting Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We've been to the Pentagon. CBS's Cammie McCormick is there paying attention to what's been happening all morning long. And Matt Piper is with us in New York. And uh, we're also going to step back a little bit in time with somebody who was in the Bush administration George W. Bush's national security advisor at the time of the attacks, Condoleezza Rice, she spoke with John Batchelor. I first needed to uh, get to the bunker, but I will admit, John, I stopped to call my family. You have to know the Rices and Rays. They would have made their way to Washington if I hadn't told them I was all right. And then I called the president. And uh, as you might imagine, the president wanted to come back. He said, I'm coming back. I said, you cannot come back. It's not safe here. The United States is under attack. And then I went to the bunker. I knew the vice president. I saw the vice president uh, when I walked in. The other person who was very important at this moment was uh, Transportation Secretary Norman Mineta, uh, former California congressman. Uh, Norm was trying to track uh, aircraft on a legal pad. We had to get all, uh, all aviation out of the skies as quickly as possible because every plane had become a potential missile. And so my concern was to do that. Um, I knew that it was going to be some time before I could talk to the president again. The vice president was talking to the president, asking him, should they give the Air Force permission to shoot down any plane that was not squawking properly, that was not identifying itself? And in what I think must have been just a Hobson choice, the president said, yes, if a plane is not squawking properly, the Air Force should shoot it down. And at that moment, you sort of realize that uh, the president of the United States has just given an order that might uh, exacerbate the problem, that might actually bring down a civilian aircraft. And there was an awful uh, 10 to 15 minutes when uh, that plane went down in a, in a field in Pennsylvania. We now know that it was the, the passengers that drove it into the ground to keep it from being a missile. I, I will tell you, John, we thought maybe we shot it down. And the vice president just kept saying to the Pentagon, you must know, you must know whether or not a plane, uh, you engaged a civilian aircraft. And they kept saying, we can't confirm. 
So many decisions being made. Condoleezza Rice there. Our evening news anchor, Nora O'Donnell, spoke with two fighter pilots who took off on 9-11 20 years ago to protect the nation's capital, knowing it might be their last mission. It was a normal Tuesday morning. Lieutenant General Mark Sassville and Heather Penny flew F-16s for the Air National Guard. On September 11, 2001, they watched two planes hit the World Trade Center. We knew immediately, as soon as we saw the images, that we needed to protect and defend. Protect and defend the nation's capital, as commercial airliners had become weapons of war. What did you understand about the rules of engagement, Heather? We understood what the threat was. We were looking for a rogue airliner flying low that was not communicating with air traffic control. The pilots had no time to spare. The country was under attack. They knew of at least one plane still in the sky, flying low. It was United Flight 93. You got United 93. They didn't even have time to load missiles. So you two were flying F-16s that weren't armed with missiles. So how were you going to take down Flight 93? We were going to have to hit the airplane and, and disable it somehow. A kamikaze mission. Our only choice was going to be to ram the airliner. Sir, I remember you would take the cockpit to aim at the terrorists. And I would take the tail. That's not something you survive. No. As the military, we don't send our service members on suicide missions. But it was clear what needed to be done that morning. It was not an order through the chain of command. It was your call to ram the plane. We didn't have any other choice. And we weren't going to be caught on the ground watching America get hit again. What they didn't know was that the passengers and crew of Flight 93 fought back and drove the plane into a field in Shanksville. 20 years later, how often do you think about that day, 9-11? I think about it every day. Those on Flight 93 that paid the ultimate price, those are the real heroes. Sass and I owe our lives to them. That's also why when I think of 9-11, instead of being overcome by the trauma and the horror and the tragedy, I'm actually overcome by hope that the best of who we are was demonstrated on that day. So in some ways, living my life as normally as possible is the biggest way that we can say that the terrorists did not win. John T. Nasso. Brian F. Goldberg. Michael Garumella. Michelle Goldstein. The names being read at Ground Zero in New York. We will get there shortly with Matt Piper. Let's turn to the Pentagon. Activities have been going on there, too, to mark the attack 20 years ago. CBS's Cami McCormick. Cami. Steve, the ceremony has just wrapped up at the Pentagon, and most of the families now have moved from the area where the ceremony took place to the adjacent memorial uh, that was built in 2008. It was interesting hearing that interview with Nora O'Donnell and those pilots. It really highlights the sacrifices that service members have been willing to make from 9-11 until today and will again in the future. Uh, General Mark Milley, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, spoke at the Pentagon ceremony, and he paid tribute to U.S. service members, 800,000 who he said served in Afghanistan. 
And we said thousands more stand watch today. 13 lost just two weeks ago in Afghanistan. And he said this, their deaths are coming as we close this terrible chapter in our nation's history. For two decades, he said, armed forces and intelligence services have protected the nation. Um, he called them incredibly emotional and exhausting and trying years. And then he appeared to be referring to veterans when he spoke of those who were conflicted right now with what he called anger, sorrow and sadness. And he said that should be combined with pride and resilience, apparently referring to Afghanistan there. And he said to them, you did your duty. Your service matters and your sacrifice was not in vain. Cammie McCormick summing up what's been going on at the Pentagon. Let's shift to New York City. CBS's Matt Piper has been been there watching things unfold. Emotional day in New York City 20 years after the attacks. Hello, Matt. Hey there, Steve. And as we are speaking here, there is now more sunlight coming across this area, just making it an even more picture-perfect day than it already has been. It's, it's, it's a scene here where you're still surrounded by very tall buildings. And throughout the day is when the sun just kind of starts to peek from behind them and just makes this scene all the more great in terms of what we are seeing here today with the family members, many of whom are still holding up these signs. I'm looking at one right here that says uh, the name of someone who was killed, a smiling face on a white cardboard piece of paper. There's other signs as well of family members here. This memorial is one for 10 years. You have the reflecting pools here at the World Trade Center site, standing near where those two buildings were. And then underneath us is where there is a museum. Thousands of people pass through these places each and every year, really each and every month. There's so many people who visit here. There are six moments of silence here at this area. We have already gone through most of them. There's still one more remaining, as you know. But there are still about... I don't know, thousands of of people here. They were expecting as many as 10,000 because family members of the fallen were able to invite as many people as they wanted to. They are a very special group here, a tight-knit group after all these years, who not only see each other on this day, but certainly keep in touch with one another as well. Most of the people who were killed here all, of course, lived nearby, whether they lived in New York City or in nearby New Jersey, out on Long Island, lost many people as well, and of course throughout the five boroughs. So this is a tight group. Even though nearly 3,000 people lost their lives on that day, everyone is intertwined here, and they are hugging. Many of them, you know, this might be the, the one time a year that they see each other for family member to, to friend or other family member, but there's just, there, there's tears, but there's also there's also a lot of smiles here, Steve, because it's just... It's a day that they can come together and and be as one and remember their loved ones. And Matt, we'll stay with you as we get closer to 1028, the next moment of silence for the fall of the North Tower. We'll tell you that President Biden has just boarded a plane at Air Force One in New York, uh, heading for Shanksville, Pennsylvania. He's got a busy day, of course. And uh, moving on from New York to Shanksville, later on to the Pentagon, where he will lay a wreath. And uh, he did not speak in New York. In fact, as you mentioned, Matt, it's a very tight-knit group, and they keep it to the families. In the first few years after 9-11, the thought was that politicians would make speeches at events like this. And uh, no, no, it was shut down that uh, the people who organized this 
didn't want politicians to speak. They want the, the family members to speak and say the names out loud and perhaps mention stories, but keep it somber and not political. They've been very vocal about that. In fact, uh, I saw President Biden walk here to leave maybe about 40 minutes ago or so, and there's lines of people just being very quiet as those dignitaries left. I also saw Bill and Hillary Clinton Clinton walk by, and, uh, you know, just really everyone was was silent when these dignitaries walked by, but they have been very vocal in, in, in not wanting... You know, even the biggest of world leaders down here in speaking, they say that this is this is a moment for us. This is a moment for our families, even as we still hear in the background these names being read. These are the family members of those who were lost. And this is a very important day for them to just have a moment to say that person's name, maybe say a few words about what they remember about their spouse or about their father or their mother. And it's just a day for them this is this is one of the 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 days just to to honor their loved one who was lost here at this site matt we'll get back to you soon a famous photo emerged in papers right after the 9-11 attacks the falling man and this was happening before the towers just came down the first responders describing the sickening thought of when people would jump there was criticism people thought the photo was too raw too personal too much too soon cbs's john dickerson spoke with the man who was behind the camera. After almost six decades as a photographer, Richard Drew has learned a basic rule. That you can be two hours early, but you can't be a 60th of a second late. In other words, if you're not there when it happens, you can't take a picture of it. On September 11, 2001, when he made one of the most searing pictures of that day, he was not at the World Trade Center at 846, or 903 when the planes hit the towers. He had been on assignment at a maternity fashion show in Midtown when his office called. A plane has hit the World Trade Center, very calmly. A plane hit the World Trade Center. He dove into the subway and emerged on the southern tip of Manhattan. When did you start making pictures? The minute I came out of the subway. What's going through your mind when you're taking them? It's all reflexive. You just do it. You just do your job. All of your senses are heightened, and on the other hand, you have to basically shut something down in order to do your work. You do. You have to just pretend that it's not there. You just do your thing. Richard Drew has been doing his thing since age 19. When growing up in a suburb of Los Angeles called Temple City, he bought a police scanner. And I would listen to the police, and then I could, you know, go chase a car accident or a fire or something. If he wasn't chasing breaking news, he learned to put himself near where news might break. We can start to work together. We are a great country. On June 5th, 1968, he decided to see presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy speak at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. The office didn't know I was there. I just assigned myself to go to this job. Drew went into the kitchen looking for a glass of water. Robert Kennedy was there, too. So was a gunman. As the 42-year-old junior senator lay on the ground, Drew climbed on a table, photographing the chaos. Kennedy's wife approached Drew and the other photographers. Also a picture of Ethel going like this, you know, I don't, please don't take pictures of that. She was asking us, myself and the UPI photographer, not to, not to photograph it. What did you think when Ethel said, don't take the picture? Well, that was her choice, but not mine. What's your choice? My, my job is to record history, and I record history every day. What happens if you mess with that rule? You're not a journalist. Then you're just a person with a camera. What's the difference between 
a photograph and just a picture, whether you're going to want to look at it. Or, in the case of his most famous photograph, whether you're going to want to look away. When you made the falling man picture, did you know that you had done something extraordinary? I didn't take the picture. The camera took the picture of the falling man. And when these people were falling, I would then put my finger on the trigger of the camera and I'd hold the camera up and I'd photograph and follow them going down. And the pig, then the camera would open and close and take the pictures that they were going down. I have, I think, eight or nine frames of this gentleman falling. Uh, and the camera just happened to cycle in that time when he was completely vertical. I didn't see that picture really until I got back to the office and then started looking at my stuff on my laptop. I didn't see it. Were you scared when you were making pictures on the day you were at the World Trade Center? Not really, because it's interesting that his camera is a filter for me. I, I didn't know that the building, the first building had collapsed because I was, I'm looking at it through a, a, a telephoto lens and I'm only seeing a piece of whatever's going on. Drew's image, which came to be known as the falling man, appeared in a number of newspapers the next day. Many people found the lonesome vision too shocking. One high-profile viewer was mesmerized by its deeply human pull. But it's not a shot that a lot of people probably would want to hang on their wall. Five years ago, Sir Elton John told Anthony Mason that he had to purchase the photograph for his personal collection. I have that photograph. It took me two years to get it. Why did you, because, want, why did you want it? Because it's, again, it's just the most incredible, it's the most beautiful image of something so tragic. It's probably one of the most perfect photographs ever taken. Twenty years after the attack, it captures, perhaps more than any other picture, the horror of that day. It's still sort of that verboten picture. I'll show it to somebody and they'll say, oh, a falling man, I'll show it to him on my phone. they go, oh, no, I, I don't want to see that. Why do you think they have that range? Because they can identify with it. Yeah. They can identify and think that that could be me. When you look at the pictures you made from that period today, what do you think? I think that I would do it the same. I, I, I wouldn't change anything because, like I said before, it's my job to go to record history. A picture stops a moment in time. It captures a moment in time. And hopefully I can stop a reader for that moment in time to catch their attention. And that's what it's really about. And is it about transporting them back to that moment? It's to show them what, what happened at that moment in time that they weren't there to see. I have that privilege that I can do that. And the reader can then come to their own conclusion. They can come to their own conclusion about the falling man also, and that's what that's about. The identity of the falling man has never been determined, though journalists have found two possibilities. Here's uh, Jonathan Briley, and over here's uh, Norberto Hernandez, and only one name apart. But Drew was able to help identify another victim on that day. I can't remember how many actual people I photographed doing this, but it wasn't just one or two people. A gentleman called the AP and said that he knew what his fiance was wearing and that day and they had not recovered her body or anything and he was wondering if he could look at my photographs at the AP. I actually sat with him on my laptop and we looked at it frame by frame and of the people falling from the building and he saw it. And he said, oh yeah, that's her and that was it. For a month after the attack, Drew photographed the aftermath. And my cell phone rang and it was uh, my daughter. And she says, uh, Dad, I just want to tell you that I love you. And, uh, and to this day, she calls me on September 11th, no matter where I am, to say, Dad, I love you, because I might not have survived. 
The Falling Man, one of the famous photos from 9-11. We return to New York City now. 1028 is the time the North Tower fell to the ground. Let's listen as they read the names and we approach a moment of silence. Patrick Henry. William L. Henry Jr. Catherine Henry Robinson. John Christopher Henwood. Robert Allen Hepburn. Mary Herencia. Lindsay C. Perkness III. Harvey Robert Hermer. Humberto Fernandez. Raul H. Fernandez. saw myself before you looked at me before you kissed my face before you smiled at me and I knew that day I would never that's Chris Jackson performing now at ground zero after the moment of silence for the falling of the North Tower CBS's Matt Piper is on hand at ground zero Matt Steve, just to sit here and think about that tower collapsing 20 years ago, you know, it was almost two hours from when it first was hit by the plane to then going down. And just to imagine the people who were near the top of that tower, possibly, you know, above where the plane struck to just know that they had nowhere to go is just still even 20 years later, just as you, as we stand and sit here in this location here, it's just, just shocking to think about that. That must have just been an agonizing two hours from when the plane first struck to not knowing if you'd ever be able to get out. And then, of course, the hundreds and hundreds of firefighters who were running into that building even nearly two hours later to try and save people. In all, there were 343 members of the FDNY who were killed here on this day, 23 members of the NYPD. All in all, in terms of first responders, 441 first responders were killed on this day 20 years ago. In between these songs from performers, including Bruce Springsteen, who opened this event earlier this morning, is the reading of these names. The memorial here has nearly 3,000 names, all of whom will be mentioned here today, mostly by family members of those who will get the chance to read the name of their loved ones. It's still just a, a, 
the sun keeps shining and, and keeps pouring over more of these trees here. If you've ever seen or have been lucky enough to be down here, there are 413 white oak trees at this memorial plaza. And each time you've come to me, it just keeps getting more and more sunny. It's just such a nice day here today. About 70 degrees or so. And the family members, some of, I saw leaving already. It might just be too too much for them. But there are still, of course, so many of them here who either want to be here to, to hear the rest of the names or maybe their loved one's name has not yet been read because this will take much of today, Steve, but it's just touching tributes as we hear from this singer right now as well. Chris Jackson singing there, Matt, and uh, some people in the audience are crying. Uh, the words may have some particular meaning, and uh, you're right, it's more of an active scene now. People are moving around, and uh, as you say, I'm sure some some have left New York, and uh, uh, their names perhaps have been read that were of interest to them. Many of the politicians have since left. Absolutely. And it appears that we now have more of those names being read. You know, earlier on, some of the people reading the names were just so young. And to just think that these were possibly sons or daughters. Yep who get a chance to be able to say what their loved one meant to them. And many of them, you know, were maybe one or two years old when this happened. And here they are now 20 years later memorializing their father or their mother who who died here 20 years ago. Let's listen to some of that now. And my beloved sister, Catherine Patricia Salter, she had a habit of saying, get over it. And Kathy, we have never gotten over it. But we have gotten on with it. We've tried to live life fully each day. And your love and companionship as a sister continues to inspire us and to inspire me. Your light shone bright and beautiful, and you live on in our hearts. Gary Harold. Jeffrey Allen Hirsch. Thomas J. Hetzel. Leon Bernard Hayward, MC Sundance. Brian Christopher Hickey. Enemencio Dario Hidalgo Cedeno. Timothy Brian Higgins. Robert D. W. Higley II. Todd Russell Hill. Clara Victorine Hines. Neil O. Hines. Mark Hindi. Katsuyuki Hirai. Heather Malia Ho. Tara Yvette Hobbs. Thomas Anderson Hobbs. James J. Hoban. Robert Wayne Hobson III. Duan Hodges. Ronald G. Horner. Patrick A. Hoey. John A. Hoffer. Marisha Marcia Hoffman. Stephen Gerard Hoffman. Frederick Joseph Hoffman. Michelle L. Hoffman. Judith Florence Hoffmiller. Wallace Cole Hogan, Jr. Thomas Warren Holweck, 
Jr. Jonathan R. Homan. Cora Hidalgo Holland. John Holland. Joseph F. Holland. Jimmy I. Holly. Elizabeth Holmes. Thomas P. Hullahan. Herbert Wilson Homer. Leroy W. Homer Jr. Bradley V. Horn. James P. Hopper. And my brother, Brian Joseph Murphy. We miss you terribly. Love you forever. Your girls are excellent. It's uh, a pleasure to see them move to a life of helping others. And my deeply loved and dearly missed uncle, Christopher Newton Carter. We will never forget you. Names being read in New York City. Among the horror of 9-11, there were stories of heroism, of course, and like the group of firefighters that somehow survived inside the collapsed World Trade Center for four hours and managed to save a woman's life. Correspondent Michael George sat down with one of them. Retired FDNY Lieutenant Matt Komarowski's memories of September 11th are always close. This was my helmet um, on the day of 9-11. Why is it important for you to have this here in your home? It reminds me of um, the firemen that we lost that day. It reminds me of all the lives we lost that day. 20 years ago, he and the other members of Ladder Company 6 went into the World Trade Center's North Tower searching for survivors, trying to climb more than 90 flights of stairs as debris fell around them. My captain turned to us and said, firemen will die today. And that was a very poignant moment for all of us. When the South Tower collapsed, Ladder Company 6 got the order to evacuate. That's when they spotted Josephine Harris, who needed help getting down the stairs. We were taking her down, and at about the eighth floor, our building came down. The North Tower collapsed on top of them. I immediately screamed to the guys in front of us to move. What happened next almost defies explanation. The entire building around them was destroyed, but Stairwell B, the spot where they were assisting Josephine, remained standing. Where she stopped turned out to be the spot we needed to be. They spent four hours trapped in the rubble, but all six men on the crew and Josephine made it out alive. There were so many other firemen that day that were doing exactly what we were doing. Um, Why we survived, we have no idea. Josephine, who worked as a bookkeeper for the Port Authority, stayed close with Matt and the other firefighters who saved her. We had a special bond with her. She was our guardian angel. If she had continued down to the lobby and then our building came down, we wouldn't be around. In 2011, Ladder Company 6 served as pallbearers when Josephine passed away, carrying her one last time. Michael George, CBS News, New York. In a way that has forever altered their lives. These proud men and women of Somerset County in this surrounding Let's listen region, in now. We're in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, for the ceremonies going on there to honor the victims on Flight 93. Terrorism met rural America. Proud. Strong. Determined. The relationship our families and our nation has forged with this local community is extraordinary. To our extended family here in the Somerset County region, 
you will forever have our complete gratitude. You have embraced us and the story of our loved ones in a selfless, fiercely protective fashion, even as you continue to move forward, carrying the pain and anguish thrust upon your community 20 years ago. Recently, I was listening to former Congressman Trey Gowdy discussing the ultimate sacrifices made by our men and women in uniform. During his remarks, I was struck by a common theme that I do not recall highlighted in prior years. It was a theme that I felt strongly was consistent with the story of the heroes of Flight 93 and all those we lost on September 11th. I experienced a, a moment of clarity that brought my understanding of heroism and a sacrifice to an uncomfortable reality, moving me to question who we are as a society. What struck such a Shanksville, Pennsylvania, we're listening to Gordon Felt, the president of the families of Flight 93. His brother Edward was on that flight. CBS's Jim Crisula has been taking in the ceremonies today in Shanksville, and he joins us. Jim? Steve, I talked to Gordon yesterday about the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and he said, really, it's no different for these families in terms of their pain and loss than any other of the anniversaries. He said the 17th, the 14th, the 9th, whatever you have. He did tell me that, obviously, that this year the ceremony's taking taken on new significance, and he said, I believe that there's more interest in this than any other time since 9-11. And he told me that the families find that very gratifying. As Gordon Felt speaks about the 40 passengers and crew, the heroes of Flight 93, and of course about his brother, his oldest brother, he lost here, Steve. Jim Crisula in Shanksville. Jim, you know, your ceremony a bit different than the others at the Pentagon. We heard from the Defense Secretary, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs in New York, We hear basically just from family members, but in Shanksville, we'll hear not only from people like Mr. Feltz, but also we're going to hear from former President George W. Bush and, uh, I guess, Vice President Harris as well. Have we become desensitized to what really happened that fateful morning? Have we diminished the courageous actions of these brave men and women, these heroes we honor today? at the Flight 93 National Memorial, as well as those in New York City and at the Pentagon, by relegating their stories to the history books. As a country, we shouldn't seek to move on, but rather let us dedicate ourselves to moving forward, honoring and remembering the sacrifices made on September 11th, the lessons we learned, remembering the names And from Shanksville, Pennsylvania, we go to New York City, where they're reading the names. CBS's Matt Piper has been watching the events unfold today. He's back with us now. Hi, Matt. Hey there, Steve. I'm actually standing here with Rich Lamb, who was a longtime WCBS news radio reporter here in New York for just many years, who covered the mayor and, of course, covered the aftermath of 9-11. Rich a day like today, you're actually coming out of retirement to, to be here. What, what does it mean to you to be down here today? Well, this is a, a day which shocked the, the city and the nation. I can remember 
Um, I was so shocked that when I pulled out of my driveway, I, I turned the wrong way to come to New York. And I, that's when I realized the impact of this. We, you know, when that second plane hit the South Tower and we realized it was terrorism, nobody had ever been here before. As Rudy Giuliani said, when he looked up and saw people leaping out of the tower to get away from the fire, he says, we've never been here before. This is something we've, we've never seen. And you, you've really covered City Hall for, for many years. I mean, you, you've covered different mayors who have been down here, who, of course, were here on that day. Uh, you know, what what was it like just in the aftermath of that? Well, you know, Giuliani began to read Churchill. Uh, and when he did, he was inspired by Churchill. And he, his leadership uh, during that time was extraordinary. And uh, he, he became a national figure as a result. It, he never went anywhere nationally. And uh, we're not entirely sure where he is now. But uh, during that crisis, he was the figure to turn to. He was a pillar of strength uh, and even wanted to get an extra three months in office because he really didn't think that uh, the incoming mayor, who was Michael Bloomberg, could handle it well enough. He didn't get that three months. And Bloomberg took over and began to rebuild this area. And just as a reporter who's been down here so long, even just today I've seen people say hello to you and sources of yours, whether they're NYPD, FDNY, or just family members. You've gotten to know so many people from from this tragic event. I have. And, uh, you know, we've been here every single year uh, to to mark this anniversary, to see uh, the grief and the sorrow, uh, and and to, to, to think about the support that this uh, this ceremony offers to the people who took those terrible losses that day. So, yeah, they do begin to, to get to know you. And trust me, they have touched my heart and the hearts of every reporter who's been here uh, during those years. And I'm sure that's why you wanted to be here today, because as I mentioned, you actually retired in the last year, but here you are now, 20 years later. Yeah, that's right. Retired in February, but uh, couldn't possibly miss the 20th anniversary of this terrible event that hit the city, the nation, and the world and changed all of our lives. That's Rich Lamb, formerly of WCBS News Radio 880 here in New York. Rich, thank you so much, and thanks for being here. Back to you, Steve. All right, Matt. Rich Lamb, one of the great storytellers on the radio, that's for sure. He has uh, done it for decades, and uh, we're glad he's enjoying retirement and back for 9-11 20 years later. Let's shift now to Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We're about to hear from former President George W. Bush. To the families and passengers of Flight 93. President Bush is fondly remembered by everyone involved in the effort to commemorate the heroes of Flight 93 for signing the act that created this national memorial on September 24th, 2002. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the 43rd President of the United States, George W. Bush. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Laura and I are honored to be with you. Madam Vice President, Vice President Cheney, Governor Wolf, Secretary Holland, and distinguished guests. Twenty years ago, we all found in different ways, in different places, but all at the same moment, 
that our lives would be changed forever. The world was loud with carnage and sirens, and then quiet with missing voices that would never be heard again. These lives remain precious to our country and infinitely precious to many of you. Today we remember your loss, we share your sorrow, and we honor the men and women you have loved so long and so well. For those too young to recall that clear September day, it is hard to describe the mix of feelings we experienced. There was horror at the scale, there was horror at the scale of destruction and awe at the bravery and kindness that rose to meet it. There was shock at the audacity, audacity of evil and gratitude for the heroism and decency that opposed it. In the sacrifice of the first responders, in the mutual aid of strangers, in the solidarity of grief and grace, the actions of an enemy revealed the spirit of a people, and we were proud of our wounded nation. In these memories, the passengers and crew of Flight 93 must always have an honored place. Here, the intended targets became the instruments of rescue, and many who are now alive owe a vast, unconscious debt to the defiance displayed in the skies above this field. It would be a mistake to idealize the experience of those terrible events. All that many people could initially see was the brute randomness of death. All that many could feel was unearned suffering. All that many could hear was God's terrible silence. There are many who still struggle with a lonely pain that cuts deep within. In those fateful hours, we learned other lessons as well. We saw that Americans were vulnerable, but not fragile. That they possess a core of strength that survives the worst that life can bring. We learned that bravery is more common than we imagined, emerging with sudden splendor in the face of death. We vividly felt how every hour with our loved ones was a temporary and holy gift. And we found that even the longest days end. Many of us have tried to make spiritual sense of these events. There is no simple explanation for the mix of providence and human will that sets the direction of our lives. But comfort can come from a different sort of knowledge. After wandering long and lost in the dark, many have found they were actually walking step by step toward grace. As a nation, our adjustments have been profound. Many Americans struggled to understand why an enemy would hate us with such zeal. The security measures incorporated into our lives are both sources of comfort and reminders of our vulnerability. And we have seen growing evidence that the dangers to our country can come not only across borders, but from violence that gathers within. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home. 
but in their disdain for pluralism, in their disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols. They are children of the same foul spirit, and it is our continuing duty to confront them. After 9-11, millions of brave Americans stepped forward and volunteered to serve in the armed forces. The military measures taken over the last 20 years to pursue dangers at their source have led to debate. But one thing is certain. We owe an assurance to all who have fought our nation's most recent battles. Let me speak directly to veterans and people in uniform. The cause you pursued at the call of duty is the noblest America has to offer. You have shielded your fellow citizens from danger. You have defended the beliefs of your country and advanced the rights of the downtrodden. You have been the face of hope and mercy in dark places. You have been a force for good in the world. Nothing that has followed, nothing can tarnish your honor or diminish your accomplishments. To you and to the honored dead, our country is forever grateful. In the weeks and months following the 9-11 attacks, I was proud to lead an amazing, resilient, united people. When it comes to the unity of America, those days seem distant from our own. Malign force seems at work in our common life that turns every disagreement into an argument and every argument into a clash of cultures. So much of our politics has become a naked appeal to anger, fear, and resentment. That leaves us worried about our nation and our future together. I come without explanations or solutions. I can only tell you what I've seen. On America's day of trial and grief, I saw millions of people instinctively grab for a neighbor's hand and rally to the cause of one another. That is the America I know. At a time when religious bigotry might have flowed freely, I saw Americans reject prejudice and embrace people of Muslim faith. That is the nation I know. At a time when nativism could have stirred hatred and violence against people perceived as outsiders, I saw Americans reaffirm their welcome to immigrants and refugees. That is the nation I know. At a time when some viewed the rising generation as individualistic and decadent, I saw young people embrace an ethic of service and rise to selfless action. That is the nation I know. This is not mere nostalgia. It is the truest version of ourselves. It is what we have been and what we can be again. Twenty years ago, terrorists chose a random group of Americans on a routine flight to be collateral damage in a spectacular act of terror. 
the 33 passengers and seven crew of Flight 93 could have been any group of citizens selected by fate. In a sense, they stood in for us all. The terrorists soon discovered that a random group of Americans is an exceptional group of people facing an impossible circumstance. They comforted their loved ones by phone, braced each other for action, and defeated the designs of evil. These Americans were brave, strong, and united in ways that shocked the terrorists, but should not surprise any of us. This is the nation we know. And whenever we need hope and inspiration, we can look to the skies and remember. God bless. President George W. Bush speaking in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. CBS's Jim Crisula is there. Hello, Jim. Hi, Steve. Yeah, Vice, uh, former President George W. Bush just now finishing up his remarks here. To about 500 people gathered, family members of those who lost their lives here in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, or just outside of the small town here in southwestern Pennsylvania. The president, uh, I thought it was interesting, among other things, Steve, talking about the fact of the threat that America faces now, not only from abroad, but from within. And among other things, the former president talked about healing and coming together as a nation and the fact that we're so lacking in that right now, so divided politically, culturally, religiously. And the president talking about the fact that needs to change. He said, to the effect, I come here offering no solutions to the problems we now face in that regard. Steve? And, Jim, his message was definitely to try to uh, reestablish that uh, what we saw after 9-11 was very important, that people did come together, and it's time for the country to try to do that again. And uh, he's not sure how to do that, it, it seems, from the way he spoke. I remember, Steve... A couple of weeks or so after September 11th, I went to State College, Pennsylvania, the home of Penn State, to cover a a small parade, a patriotic parade, just a kind of a gathering of the community. And I still remember sitting down along on the curb, a woman sitting there waving a small American flag. And I still remember her looking at me and, and I just said to her, what are your thoughts? Put the microphone in front of her face and let her talk. And I still remember, Steve, she looked at me and she said, right now I'm thinking we're all Americans. We're no longer black, white, Hispanic, Asian. We're no longer Republican, Democrat. We're all Americans at this point. And certainly there was that sense here and all across the country. Jim, as uh, you look out uh, over that area, as you've described to us, it's this is a field. This is a wide open space. Com- much different than the Pentagon and New York City. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot to take in visually where you are right now. And again, Steve, about the only sound you hear at this site most of the time, when it's not windy, which is quite often, the sound of crickets. As I've said repeatedly, people who come here by and large do so in silence, reflective, 
I said earlier on our broadcast, it, this reminds me uh, in a lot of ways of the Vietnam Wall, wall in Washington, D.C., the reverence people uh, afford it, how reflective they are when they come here. Uh, this area is called the Laurel Highlands of southwestern Pennsylvania. I heard one of the National Park Service officials say a couple of days ago, Steve, that this is the ninth highest point in the state of Pennsylvania. It's an old abandoned strip mine. I remember 20 years ago coming here on September 11th, you could still see some of the equipment, the, the huge massive scoops that were used, the cranes that were used to extract coal from this area. On the road between here and Shanksville, about five miles south of here, there are actually now some new Jim Crisula in Shanksville, thanks. Our coverage will continue. We remember 9-11. It's CBS News on the Hour, sponsored by Facet Wealth. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington, 20 years after the September 11th terror attacks. For death is not the end. That's Bruce Springsteen at the National September 11th Memorial in New York City. Nearly 3,000 people died on this day. This firefighter kept a bolt from the North Tower of the World Trade Center and remembers the smell of debris. It, it wasn't the smell of death. It wasn't the smell of crushed concrete. It wasn't smell of rigs that were crushed and that burned. And it was all of that together. It's 9-11. President Biden and the First Lady, along with former Presidents Obama and Clinton and their wives, shared a moment of silence to mark this terrible day. In a pre-taped statement, Mr. Biden spoke of the true sense of national unity after the attacks. I'm Mayor Rubin in New York. Those here remembering say the 9-11 attacks changed New York and America forever. Seeing all the things that are happening, especially with the people in Afghanistan right now, it's, it feels even more impactful for me today that we're still here being strong together as Americans to recognize just how important it is to fight for our freedom. Mike Lowe, whose daughter Sarah was a flight attendant on the plane that hit the North Tower, said it is also important to remember those who acted above and beyond the ordinary 20 years ago today. Mayor Rubin, CBS News, New York. Specialist Chin Sun Pak Wells, United States Army. At the Pentagon, where hijackers crashed American Airlines Flight 77, the names of those lost were read, and Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley told Norm Orders. Those who perished here were among the 2,977 killed on that day here in New York and in Pennsylvania. Not for what they did, but for what they believed and what they represented. In Shanksville, Pennsylvania. My grandmother, Hilda Marson. There was horror at the scale of destruction and awe at the bravery and kindness that rose to meet it. Former President George W. Bush, in a somber tribute to the passengers on Flight 93 who foiled the plans of hijackers to crash the plane into the U.S. Capitol, back in New York. Jason Christopher DeFazio. David A. DeFio. Jennifer DeJesus. The reading of names continues as families hold up pictures of loved ones with broken hearts. President Biden and the First Lady will be traveling to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and later the Pentagon for wreath-laying ceremonies. This is CBS News. Facet Wealth, personalized and affordable financial planning for everyday Americans. No wealth or asset minimums. Quality financial advice for every stage of your life.
Good morning from New York City. Our CBS News live coverage of America remembers 9-11 20 years later. I'm Steve Kathan. We've been listening to the reading of the names at Ground Zero in New York, the simple and heartfelt tribute to those who died on 9-11. We're going to go to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, though, now. Vice President Harris is speaking. Superintendent Stephen Clark, Madam Secretary, and the president of the families of Flight 93, Gordon Felt. It is truly an honor to be with all of you at this field of honor. We are joined today, of course, by the family and friends of the 40 passengers and crew members of Flight 93. And we stand today with all those who lost someone on September 11, 2001, and in the aftermath of the attacks. So many in our nation, too many in our nation, have deeply felt the passage of time these last 20 years. Every birthday, your loved one missed. Every holiday, every time her favorite team won or his favorite song came on the radio. Every time you've tucked in your children or dropped them off at college. You have felt every day, every week, and every year that has passed these 20 years. So please know your nation sees you, and we stand with you, and we support you. We are gathered today on hallowed ground at this place that has been sanctified by sacrifice to honor the heroism that the 40 passengers and crew members showed in the face of grave terrorism. I remember when I first learned about what happened on that fateful flight. What happened on Flight 93 told us then, and it still tells us, so much about the courage of those on board who gave everything they possibly could, about the resolve of the first responders who risked everything, and about the resilience of the American people. On this 20th anniversary, on this solemn day of remembrance, we must challenge ourselves, yes, to look back, to remember, for the sake of our children, for the sake of their children. And for that reason, we must also look forward. We must also look toward the future. Because in the end, I do believe that is what the 40 were fighting for. Their future and ours. On the days that followed, September 11th, 2001, we were all reminded that unity is possible in America. We were reminded also that unity is imperative in America. It is essential to our shared prosperity, to our national security, and to our standing in the world. And by unity, I don't mean uniformity. We had differences of opinion in 2001, as we do in 2021. And I believe that in America, our diversity 
is our strength. At the same time, we saw after 9-11 how fear can be used to sow division in our nation. As Sikh and Muslim Americans were targeted because of how they looked or how they worshipped. But we also saw what happens when so many Americans in the spirit of our nation stand in solidarity with all people and their fellow American, with those who experience violence and discrimination, when we stand together. And looking back, we remember the vast majority of Americans were unified in purpose to help families heal, to help communities recover, to defend our nation, and to keep us safe. In a time of outright terror, we turned toward each other. In the face of a stranger, we saw a neighbor and a friend. That time reminded us the significance and the strength of our unity as Americans and that it is possible in America. So, moments from now, we will leave this hallowed place still carrying with us the pain of this loss, this tremendous loss. And still, the future will continue to unfold. We will face new challenges, challenges that we could not have seen 20 years ago. We will seize opportunities that were at one time unimaginable. And we know that what lies ahead is not certain. It is never certain. It has never been. But I know this. If we do the hard work of working together as Americans, if we remain united in purpose, we will be prepared for whatever comes next. The 40 passengers and crew members of Flight 93, as we all know, they didn't, they didn't know each other. Most of them didn't know each other. They were different people from different places. They were on that particular flight for different reasons. But they did not focus on what may separate us. No, they focused on what we all share, on the humanity we all share. In a matter of minutes, in the most dire of circumstances, the 40 responded as one. They fought for their own lives and to save the lives of countless others at our nation's capital. After today, it is my hope and prayer that we continue to honor their courage, their conviction, with our own, that we honor their unity by strengthening our common bonds, by strengthening our global partnerships, and by always living out our highest ideals. This work will not be easy. It never has been. 
And it will take all of us believing in who we are as a nation. And it will take all of us going forth to work together. Thank you all. May God bless you. And may God bless America. Thank you. Vice President Kamala Harris speaking in Shanksville, Pennsylvania at the ceremony for the Light 93 victims. She touched on it. So did former President Bush about the unity after 9-11 and the disunity that uh, takes place nowadays. CBS's Cammie McCormick is along with us. Uh, I remember back after 9-11, as I know you do, that America was united like never before and it, it didn't last. And the world was united behind us. Do you remember all right. the support that we got from the international community? This has been a theme that we've been hearing from day, for days now. President Biden said, um, as we saw in the days that followed the attacks, unity is our greatest strength. We just heard from Vice President Harris that unity is imperative for national security, prosperity. And she, she brought up standing in the world. Um, former President George W. Bush calling for unity and talking about how divided the nation is. Uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray wrote an op-ed this week that said today's realities demand recognition that we're all in this together. And he said one of the reasons is the men and women of law enforcement are being asked to do more than ever, and partly because the world is becoming increasingly more dangerous. And he said to develop the next generation of those willing to run toward danger to protect others, we must rekindle the spirit of unity that was on display after 9-11. And finally, we heard yesterday from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who gave a very, a very emotional speech to the State Department on the 9-11 observance. He also mentioned the unity after the 9-11 attacks and said we've become a divided nation and said with the threats evolving and growing, it's more important than ever that we remain united as one nation. And he said we'll need that going forward to face these threats we'll surely face. And you covered a lot of what happened after 9-11, after that day that you never thought you'd have to describe when the towers came tumbling down. You covered a lot of the stories that immediately followed, and there were those stories about communities coming together and about uh, what the United States did collectively to try to get a military operation together. Yeah, and it became increasingly, uh, I I became increasingly aware of traveling around the world when the world was no longer so much of a fan of ours. And it, it, right after 9-11, um, anywhere in the world, we, there were outpourings of support for the U.S. Um, after the war started, first the war in Afghanistan, but especially the war in Iraq after the U.S. invasion in March of 2003, you would travel as an American through Europe. And, and in one instance, I was in Africa and was with some Europeans who, who were, were almost looking at me with hatred. That war was so unpopular. There were a series of events that happened that that lost us a lot of support from many places. And one of them was the establishment of Guantanamo as a detention center and the images that were seen, the images from Iraq of the Abu Ghraib scandal. If you remember that, the pictures that came out of of troops um, humiliating and torturing some prisoners, various things that happened, the burning of the Koran. Um, in in Afghanistan by some U.S. troops. So many unfortunate things happened over the years that lost us that support. And as this nation became divided itself, um, we're certainly not in the same place that we were in the days after 9-11, which 
clearly helped us rebuild as quickly as we did because it was such a united country. And it seems like a sort of hubris set in when uh, the defense secretary at the time, Donald Rumsfeld, thought he could do in Iraq what was being done in Afghanistan with the early success and the early victories, that a new type of military could operate swiftly and from the air and with fewer casualties for Americans. And they sort of took a good thing too far, if you will, in terms of stretching into Iraq and, and stretching the world's patience with how far we could go. There were always the questions, and the British questioned it very early on about why we were going to war in Iraq and whether or not that was had something to do with a grudge that uh, President Bush's father may have had with Saddam Hussein. There were, there were always these questions. And, of course, the, the WMD, the weapons of mass destruction, were never found. Uh, Saddam Hussein was tried, convicted, and, and hanged, um, but that didn't seem to stop the insurgency. In fact, it got worse in Iraq. And then the war in Afghanistan at that point was almost ignored, and that was the entire reason that we went to war was because the terrorists were believed based in Afghanistan, none of them from Afghanistan, but based there. And then because, some people would argue, our attention turned to Iraq – that's when Osama bin Laden escaped Afghanistan into Pakistan. So there are a lot of different things at play here. But if you look at all the steps that happened along the way, you, you can see why, why not only the country became divided, but the world became divided over these issues. Cammy McCormick will check in with you along the way here as we continue. The cleanup and recovery efforts at Ground Zero brought together first responders and volunteers from all over the country as that unity set in. Bernie Tafoya of our Chicago affiliate, WBBM, has the story of two Illinois firefighters who made their way to New York. Pat Shea worked for 32 years as a firefighter in Morton Grove. He was teaching a class on collapsed building search and rescue when word came that planes had hit the World Trade Center towers. Normally, he says, he would go to a collapsed building believing survivors could be found. Not at ground zero, though. We're standing on rubble that our, our soles of our shoes were still melting. So it didn't take long to realize the only people we're going to recover were going to be deceased. Shea says working for several days in New York took an emotional toll on him. His voice still cracks when he talks about that time 20 years ago and how when he returned, nothing was important anymore. That impacted close relationships. He says he tried talking to a counselor, but that what he was saying was even too much for her. So he never sought any other help. I was better than that. I was stronger than that. I was tougher than that. But I'm here to tell you, Bernie, that's all a lie. It's all BS. It did affect me. Um, I was very fortunate to, to personally overcome it. Retired firefighter Pat Shea says that when he thinks back on the days after 9-11, he remembers the plumes of smoke, the destruction, the silence of fellow firefighters as they worked on sacred ground, and the applause from the people of New York. That's Bernie Tafoya of WBBM Radio in Chicago. The anguish of 9-11 lives on for those sickened after the attacks. Over 80,000 people who are enrolled now in the World Trade Center Health Program provides monitoring and treatments for health conditions that are certified and related to September 11th. WCBS reporter Peter Haskell, who was at Ground Zero in 2001, spoke with the program's medical director, Dr. Michael Crane. It's been 20 years, and the program is looking at itself in the mirror. What can we do 
what have we done, how can we do it better, how do we set it up going forward so we meet very well the chronic diseases that might come with aging. Dr. Michael Crane is medical director here at Mount Sinai. They're not just looking back, they're peering forward. You know, the program goes on and, and tries to now also get in the cancer prevention business for, you know, lung cancer screening and colon cancer screening and breast cancer screening for the female patients. They see more than 100,000 patients, including 20,000 with cancer. Hundreds are still coming in every month. Responders make up almost 75% of the group. It was like standing over an incinerator with a really, really toxic blend of stuff, plastics and metals and everything else that was in those towers on fire and coming up into your face. But the illnesses aren't just physical. The mental health consequences of the World Trade Center attack were enormous. Most common is PTSD. Patients who are having the nightmares and having the fears and feeling depressed and feeling lost and feeling as though somehow they did something wrong. It's very, very difficult for, for patients to have a condition like that. While 4,300 people have died from 9-11 related illnesses, Dr. Crane says the program is doing all it can. I think it has saved lives. I think it has, more than that, it has brought peace of mind. Peter Haskell for CBS News, New York. And with the 20th anniversary of 9-11 comes a flood of memories and emotions of all kinds. CBS's Elise Preston spoke with the widow of a New York City firefighter, a hero, but also a husband and father. One of the things I miss the most is just laying in bed with my head on his shoulder, just talking away. Ann Van Hines' husband was a New York City firefighter, one of the 343 FDNY responders who died in the attack on the World Trade Center. Now when I look at these names, I, I know their family members. For Bruce Van Hine, being a firefighter was a childhood dream. Squad 41 lost everyone on duty that day. They lost all six firefighters. They went into building two and got pretty high up, started to bring civilians down, and then they were killed in the collapse. When was the last time you spoke to Bruce? The last time I saw Bruce was Sunday, September 9th. He said, I'm, um, I'm blessed. And I said, why? He said, because I'm married to Miss Ann. Now, the grandmother of three volunteers at the 9-11 Tribute Museum, giving more than 500 tours where Bruce died a hero. But the one day she never visits the site is the September 11th anniversary. I don't know that I can take on the collective grief of 3,000 people. 20 years ago, Joan Masterpolo lived just a block west of the towers. She watched the attacks from her office window. I saw both towers get struck by the planes. Um, I was never able to make it back home. As a volunteer for the Tribute Museum, she shares stories of both the horrors and humanity of the day. We had over 500,000 people come here after 9-11 with only one objective. They wanted to help. That support from both loved ones and strangers has helped Van Hine carry on as she honors her husband's memory and makes sure we never forget. Elise Preston, CBS News, New York.
Well, the teaching of 9-11 in school can vary from the way it's taught to certain ages to the timing of the lesson plan. Just 14 states have mandated that there be some sort of curriculum about 9-11. CBS News correspondent Jennifer Kuyper in Chicago with a look. Many of us remember where we were on 9-11. I was getting on the elevator and somebody said that a plane had gone into the Pentagon. I was looking out my classroom at all those tall buildings downtown and feeling really oddly unsettled. A lot of us turned on radios and TVs to find out what was going on. We are now looking at flames shooting out of the north side. So how are children learning about 9-11 20 years later? It depends on the age of the students due to the graphic situation. And in some cases, it's discussed in broad terms, war or coming together as a nation. Jared Ploger teaches American Studies and U.S. Government and Politics at Bolingbrook High School, southwest of Chicago. When I first started teaching 9-11, it was more about, let's remember this, let's talk about this, because, you know, it was a traumatic event for them. Now it's evolved. It has turned into an historical event uh, that students haven't lived through. That's the case for West Suburban Chicago High School student Aidan Bertacchini. He was born a few years after the terror attacks. Asked if he was taught about 9-11 in school, he says... I don't personally recall any time that it was specifically a lesson, but I do remember it being talked about, like teachers would mention where they were when they first heard about it and things like that, and they'd touch on 9-11. Aiden's mother says she hasn't ever seen 9-11 specifically mentioned on her son's syllabus, and she's okay with it being addressed. At this point, due to his age, it would be like any other lesson plan, but I'd be concerned if I had a younger child how it would be approached, because I think parts of that because of the attack was on our soil might be very scary to a younger child. Dealing with children of various ages is a challenge for Montessori school teacher Kathy Hayevsky, who has fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. She says when it comes to discussing 9-11... So I do, but it's really, really carefully done. And I want to respect that parents have elected not to let their children know about it yet. You know, their children that at nine years old, they still really don't understand death. And like the death of their hamster is a monumental thing. So to tell them about death on a massive scale that's intentionally done is something that not all nine-year-olds are really ready for. Ploger says when 9-11 is discussed might surprise some because in the fall, his students are usually studying the American Revolution. Really getting into 9-11 may make sense, more sense, I should say, in May when we get into the 21st century and, and really start to show how things have evolved on the timeline. For Hayevsky's younger students, they really want to know why it happened because even if they understand that it did happen and how death can happen on this global scale, they can't still, even at 12 years old wrap their heads around why somebody would do that. Ploger adds Sometimes they'll ask some really good questions that as people who live through it they don't think about. Sometimes they're very innocent questions like why does this still matter? And for us it's real simple. Well because you know this brought us together or well because this was such a traumatic event. He says the lesson can be complex because there's too much to cover in one day and it also needs a global look. Jennifer Kuyper CBS News Chicago. Well, 9-11 was an event that affected so much of us so deeply and so in recent times has the COVID-19 pandemic. A Virginia doctor says the psychological toll of both events has helped advance the cause of mental health treatment. She spoke with WTOP Washington's Christy King. 
The shift in perspective involves mental health. In terms of our society recognizing the need for mental health treatment. Dr. Lauren Groward is a psychiatrist with the Mid-Atlantic Kaiser Permanente Medical Group. Those are some consequences, I think some, some good consequences, that have come from some painful experiences. While Grower believes big traumatic events such as 9-11 and the pandemic led to advocacy and evolving perceptions, she says there's still far to go. There still, unfortunately, is a a lot of pervasive stigma around uh, mental health and mental health treatment. And now, 20 years later, the 9-11 terror attacks are just as disturbing and painful for some. Asking the question, has our society healed? People are still healing on an individual basis, person by person. And the degree to which people have healed is really individualized. Um, and that's okay. She would just like folks to ask themselves a question. What am I doing differently? Um, from a coping skills perspective to be on a path to healing and recovery? And do I need more support, be it from friends, family, mental health treatment? Anyone experiencing emotional distress can reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 24-7 at 800-273-8255. 273-8255. For CBS News, Christy King, Washington. Inside the Pentagon on 9-11 was John Yates, a civilian security manager. Yates shared his story 10 years ago with StoryCorps in the 9-11 Museum. One of my coworkers asked me if I knew what was going on in New York. So I said no, and she said, well, you've got to come see. And there's a crowd of people watching the TV. So I stood there for a few minutes and watched. And then I walked back to my desk. I called my wife. She said she knew, and I said, well, I just wanted to let you know I was okay. And she said, do me a favor. For the rest of the day, work from underneath your desk. So I laughed, and I said, yeah, honey, I will. I love you, and I'll see you tonight. And I walked back over, and by this time, the crowd kind of thinned out a little bit. And just as I decided to get up and leave, the plane hit the outside of the building. I was blown through the air, and... When I landed, I really didn't know where I was. That kind of scared me because I knew the floor plan of our space better than I knew the floor plan of my own house. The room was just black, and everything I touched burned my hands. I just started crawling on my hands and knees, and I knew I was going in the right direction when it started getting a little bit lighter, and I could feel water on my back from the sprinklers. Eventually, I stood up and started walking down towards the center courtyard. And it's at this point that I finally realized how badly I was hurt because as I was walking, I looked down at my hands. And I remember seeing just strings of skin, which was hanging off my hands from the burns. And I remember sitting on the grass and a medic coming up and cutting all my clothes off of me and a doctor saying, he goes first. There's a lot of things that I don't remember to this day, but I remember my wife waking me up and um, I thought it was still September 11th, but it was September 13th. You know, when I went back over the second time to watch what was going on in New York, 
I was standing in the middle of five people. And uh, I'm the only one that survived. A lot more still to come on our coverage live from CBS News 20 years later. America remembers 9-11. We'll return to New York City where they're still reading the names of the victims of 9-11. This is a CBS News special report. I'm Allison Keyes. Nearly 3,000 people died 20 years ago today at the Pentagon, the World Trade Center, and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where former President George W. Bush just spoke. The world was loud with carnage and sirens, and then quiet with missing voices that would never be heard again. At the National September 11 Memorial in New York City, 343 firefighters were killed. Among them was the brother of New York City Fire Chief Joseph Pfeiffer. It was a moment where my brother came in and he didn't say a word. And we looked at each other wondering if we were going to be okay. And then I ordered him to go up. And as he turned around and took his firefighters, that was the last time I I saw my brother Kevin and Engine 33. CBS News Special Report. Good day again from New York City. 20 years later, America remembers 9-11. Our special coverage from CBS News. I'm Steve Kathan. A day to remember and pay tribute to the victims of the 9-11 attacks. We've been retelling some of the stories of the day and looking ahead with some of our people in various places. Shanksville, Pennsylvania, New York City, and uh, the Pentagon as well. Let's go to New York City where they're reading the names of the victims Let's check in with CBS's Matt Piper. He's been keeping track of events all day long. Robert, Yes, Stephen. Some of these family members are now sitting in makeshift chairs, ones that they brought on their own, because we are about halfway through, as I just heard them saying, the last name of Murphy. So we are nearly at the halfway point or so of the reading of these names. And many of these people who have come here today just wanted to kind of take a break, and they're now sitting in their seats and just enjoying what is just a a glorious day down here in terms of the weather, but of course also just trying to remember those whose lives were lost. I spoke to one woman here who says this is her first time here in 20 years, and she lost two cousins in the World Trade Center attack, and she herself to come here any of the other years, but she thought that this was the time to come 20 years later. A lot of the people here, though, still don't necessarily want to talk but they are willing to share their story, and sometimes when they're just sitting, sitting, listening to the reading of the names, they start to begin to tell the story of their family. This area is much different than, of course, what it was. We have One World Trade Center, which is the beaming tall building here that stands where the other Twin Towers used to. The One World Trade is also very, very tall. It stands at 776 feet, and there's also... a there's uh, on the very top of it is where tourists and locals alike can go. There's a huge elevator that shows a video as if you were looking on the outside. And then once you're up there, there's just a, a glorious shot of all of New York City and looking into New Jersey. And it's also meaningful because it was opened back in 2014. 
and it really symbols it's a symbolization of of what is still here in terms of large office buildings where people still come every single day to work just like they did on this day 20 years ago so steve there's of course the museum here as well this memorial with this cascading waterfall something to really see for those who have never been down here you should really try to get down here but on a day like today it's of course honoring the memory of those who were lost on this day Matt Piper at Ground Zero. You know, as 9-11 was happening in New York on that day, Sarasota, Florida was also a point of interest. That's where President Bush was touting an education plan and reading to a group of elementary school students when he first got word of the attacks. CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett was assigned to the pool of reporters covering the president on that day. The day, like no other, began just like any other. Now, it is true that no day for a president or the reporters who cover the presidency is normal. The burdens of the office and the specter of the unexpected simply never, ever subside. But some days look and feel more manageable than others. September 11, 2001, looked to be one of those manageable days. It's now 8 o'clock on a uh, Tuesday morning. It's election day. Here in New York City, it's primary day. Early that morning, President Bush went for a jog in Sarasota, Florida. On his schedule that day, a visit to Emma E. Booker Elementary School to discuss education. The plan, read to students, make remarks, fly back to Washington. After his run, the president chatted with reporters and did so casually. We talk about tax cuts. We can talk about it at the next event. I am going to talk about education, though. Education. We were all about to get one. I arrived at the elementary school before the president. Reporters, as was typical at the time, were placed in a classroom, cleared out so the traveling press, print, TV, and radio reporters could file their stories. TVs were rolled in on carts so we could monitor other news while we waited for Bush's arrival. Like all of America, we were perplexed by live coverage of some kind of plane crash into one of the Twin Towers. Understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're we learned later that Bush was told of that event while he was in the motorcade ride to Emma E. Booker Elementary. Now, there were at least two dozen reporters in that classroom, maybe more, I can't quite remember. As the live coverage continued, we saw the second airliner slam into the second tower. Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. Right? Oh, my God. None of us could believe what we saw. We were, in the purest sense of the word, at that moment dumbfounded, speechless. A room full of trained observers kept asking each other the same hopeless questions. Did you see that? What was that? Did what I think happen just happen? The president soon entered an adjacent classroom. He sat down and began to read. I was not in that room. Other traveling White House reporters were. And they looked at the president and motioned to him as if to say, Something big is happening. White House officials standing nearby looked ashen and stood as if almost paralyzed. White House Chief of Staff Andy Card moments later came in and gave Bush the word about the second jetliner crashing into the second tower. As the students were reaching down under their desks to get their books, my pet goat, which they were going to read with the president, that's when I walked up to the president. He never turned around to me. He did 
kind of tilt his head to the right. Card recently spoke to former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, for his CBS News podcast, Intelligence Matters. Our Major Garrett is traveling with the president. Shortly after the president received word about the second jetliner, I called into CNN headquarters for a phone interview. We are told by White House officials traveling with the president in Sarasota that he was notified either shortly before 9 a.m. or just shortly after. We in the hectic, panic-stricken minutes that followed, I tried to learn as much as I could from senior White House officials. They knew next to nothing. They didn't know what had happened. They didn't know what other threats were now being tracked, and they didn't know what federal resources were being set in motion. They assumed Bush would return to Washington as soon as possible, but to be clear, they were certain of almost nothing. That's not a criticism. It is just an accurate retelling of the state of unknowing that enveloped the highest echelons of the American government. I can tell you here in Sarasota with those traveling with the president, they are trying to sift through all of the amazing and terrifying uh, both pictures and details as they can uh, uh, get them from New York City, but no confirmation here from White House officials about what this in fact is, whether it's accident or terrorism. They are trying to gather information as best they can. I've often thought of the pyramid of information any U.S. president sits atop. It has grown higher and higher since World War II, and every day, vast troves of data are accumulated and stacked for the president's use. He can reach down and learn about any one of those parts of intelligence at any moment, because he sits at the very top of this pyramid. But on that fateful morning of atrocity and murder, the pyramid had been flattened. President Bush knew not much more than me, or any other American staring blankly at his or her TV. Now, TV reporters like me were clamoring to get on air. Back then, there was a system when several reporters wanted to be on TV immediately and there were only one or two transmission lines available. Believe it or not, that system was you drew lots. CNN drew first, and that meant I had the very first live shot covering what little was known at the time. President Bush has notified and talked, rather, to Vice President Cheney. He has talked to the FBI Director Robert Mueller, and he has also spoken with the governor of New York, Governor Pataki, about this catastrophe. The president will convene a national security meeting upon his arrival back at Washington. Soon thereafter, Bush sped away from Emma E. Booker Elementary. We were told he was heading back to Washington, but the president didn't do that. The first of many decisions, changing behavior for the sake of security, first for the president, then for all of us, was literally made on the fly. Bush diverted first to Louisiana, then to Nebraska, because Washington was not yet safe for his return. White House reporters who, like me, were not in the traveling press pool were left behind in Sarasota. Now, because all flights were then grounded and ground transportation options there exceedingly limited, we were not able to make it back to Washington for two full days, returning to a capital and a nation entering, for we knew not how long, a newly named conflict, the War on Terror. And as CBS's Cammy McCormick tells us, that War on Terror was mounted right away. Less than a month after the September 11th attacks, President George W. Bush announced the start of the war in Afghanistan. On my orders... The United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. 
a war that was followed by the invasion of Iraq. On the president's order, coalition forces began the ground war to disarm Iraq and liberate the Iraqi people. But both wars evolved from conventional to deadly insurgencies. U.S. troops struggled to train Iraqi security forces while fighting off a new wave of terrorists. First, there are gun battles. Then a sniper opens fire on the Iraqi troops. They run for cover as American soldiers who were backing them up go after the gunmen. Fallujah is ringed by coalition and Iraqi troops, but insurgents are still finding their way in. We were getting attacked every day in some form or another. Mortars or snipers or RPGs. This is checkpoint two. This is the one that gets a lot of contact. These American soldiers are acting as advisors to the Iraqi National Police. They visit a checkpoint late at night that's considered one of the most dangerous in Rasallah. Sunni on the right and Shia on the left. This is where we lost the one one shirt of my small arms fire was here. Mortar attacks are frequent, as are roadside bombs. One, two, three, four IDs. Sergeant Michael Malm says the threat in the area is constant. Got ambushed uh, three times, and uh, usually small arms, but also RPGs and a grenade, a grenade throw at us. Former President Bush, in a mission-accomplished speech in 2003. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. But the battle wasn't over yet, and in Afghanistan, often called the Forgotten War at the time, the insurgency was well underway, even though the top U.S. target was dead. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. But al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and then ISIS continued their fight. President Donald Trump first decided enough was enough. We are ending the era of endless wars. And then the final decision from President Joe Biden. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. After chaotic evacuations and a deadly attack on U.S. forces, the Pentagon withdrew troops just ahead of the August 31st deadline. I'm here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Cammy McCormick, CBS News. And Cammy is with us live right now. That war on terror is a little bit different than it was after 9-11. There is no more war in Afghanistan, and uh, it's more about a domestic threat. It is. There are, <clears throat> excuse me, more Americans killed by domestic terrorists than there, are, than there are foreign terrorists. But at the same time, the foreign threat has also, as we've heard so many politicians say over the last few years, metastasized. It's grown. It's splintered. Um, ISIS has grown in Afghanistan. It sort of morphed out of al-Qaeda in Iraq years ago. And this is while U.S. troops were there doing battle. So the threat has not gone. It has grown. President Biden said that was part of the reason that he decided to withdraw from Afghanistan was there were so many threats elsewhere. So that leads one to wonder how how much the global war on terror was worth and, and whether it was worth the cost in American lives and dollars. And it seems that foreign threat, while not so much people attacking us from overseas, it's getting people in here somehow who can radicalize others. Yeah, and and we've heard just yesterday in an op-ed from FBI Director Christopher Wray talking about how the threat is so much more complex now, especially with technology. The threat can emerge anywhere. 
And that's why, again, I think we're hearing so many messages today about unity in this country, because that's that's going to be a major, major force in fighting that threat, because it's taking so many different forms now. All right, Cammie, we'll get back to you shortly. Let's shift to Shanksville, Pennsylvania. CBS's Jim Crisula is there, and former President Bush made some news there. He, of course, called out this uh, sort of domestic discord, this domestic threat, perhaps, that exists, and said America certainly is not as unified as it was after 9-11. Yeah, he seemed pretty prophetic about that, too, in his comments here, Steve. Yes, saying that we need to unite. Remember, a lot of people say that's obviously the the only good thing that came from that horrible day 20 years ago today. It united us. It brought us together as Americans. It didn't last, but for a time we were united. And the former president talked about that today. He also talked about the threat that the nation faces, not only from abroad, from but from domestic terrorism. He hit on that quite a bit, as Vice President Harris did in her comments afterwards. We're awaiting the president, of Joe Biden's arrival here with the first lady. He's expected here within the next half hour to, among other things lay a wreath here at the site of where United Flight 93 crashed uh, 20 years ago today. The president is not, Steve, expected to speak, though, publicly. No, he's not. We did hear a video comment from him earlier that was released by the White House. He has arrived now in Pennsylvania. He will go to the Pentagon later today and lay a wreath there. Those ceremonies concluded earlier this morning with uh, the Defense Secretary Austin and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, speaking. Jim, I'm wondering, as uh, as we move along here, the, the memorial in Shanksville, much like the memorial in New York City, more debate about that, what it should look like, what it should feature, what perhaps is appropriate, what isn't. As Cammie McCormick told us, the Pentagon rebuild was pretty easy. I mean, that's a government building. These are certainly private areas, and a lot of people had a say in what eventually turned out to honor those on Flight 93. That's right. Organizers elicited comments and suggestions for this memorial, which I have to say, Steve, is very well done. Uh, it's been a number of years since I've been here. I did not, I have not seen the finished product before the last few days, and it is very well done. But they elicited comments from a lot of people, both here and nationally, as to what to incorporate. I remember the first few years, certainly the first months and the first few years before there was a permanent memorial here, Steve, uh, people would come just by the thousands. And like was the case after we saw what we saw in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing. I was there for that, and I remember seeing the chain link fence put up around the site as it was here, and people uh, left behind just thousands and thousands of mementos. Here they were collected, and they are still put in storage, uh, some in the museums around this area, some at the visitor center here at the site as well. Chip Crisula, he's on duty today in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. He's been there for many years over and over again to mark this day, 9-11. And he was there right after the attack in Pennsylvania. The attack that was meant, of course, for Washington, D.C. And the passengers revolted and brought down Flight 93 in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, a place most of us hadn't heard of until that day. And now it, of course, is part of 9-11 in the history as we look back 20 years on our special broadcast here from cbs news we're going to get the latest on the day's developments and come back with more 
This is a CBS News special report. I'm Stacy Lynn. 20 years since 9-11, and today we are remembering the lives lost with ceremonies in New York, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and at the Pentagon, filled with music and hope. It takes a really long time to figure out who you are and who you were meant to be. And all of us had to find new ways to get there. But if I had given up, oh, oh boy, my brother would have been so mad at me. Family members sharing their stories of how they deal each year on this day. For some reason, it's much more emotional this year. It's hard. You know, it all comes up. And hearing messages of unity. There is a lot of hate. And 9-11 was a time where the world came together. And that's what we really should remember, that we really need to stick together and be one. CBS News Special Report. And our coverage continues here from CBS News. Over the past week, CBS News Radio has been looking back at the events of 9-11 and how our world has changed. The nation's immigration system is dramatically different, due in part to the policies that followed the terror attacks. Correspondent Lilia Luciano explores some of the ways in which terrorism transformed who gets to come to the U.S. In 1996, President Clinton signed two laws that overhauled the immigration system, raising the bar on legal immigration, expanding and extending detention, and increasing deportations. We have increased our investment, our personnel, and our training for law enforcement efforts here at home. The anti-terrorism bill is grounded in common sense and steel with force. One of those bills sought to fight terrorism. But even then, President Clinton presaged that the bill changed immigration law in ways that had nothing to do with fighting terrorism. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. Five years later, after September 11, 2001, through the Patriot Act and the formation of the Department of Homeland Security, the United States government cemented the marriage between immigration enforcement and counterterrorism. The Department of Homeland Security will have four primary tasks. It will control our borders and prevent terrorists and weapons from entering our country. The way I like to put it is we need to know who's coming in and why they're coming in and what they're bringing in with them. But immigration advocates and researchers say the policies have criminalized migrants, fueled anti-immigrant rhetoric, and spread irrational fears about those who cross the border. Both anti-terrorism and immigration control agencies came together during that time period. This wasn't always the case with immigration enforcement. Historically, whenever immigration enforcement was housed in places like the Department of Labor, we can think of it as something of an of a labor issue. And now that's moved, we think of immigration and its enforcement as a issue of terrorism, given that that's the purpose of creating DHS. Luis Romero is an assistant professor of comparative race and ethnic studies at Texas Christian University and authored the research paper Islamophobia and the Making of Latinos into Terrorist Threats. Based on various reports from the FBI and other government agencies, we know that there aren't terrorists at the borders, but rather it's migrants or particularly from Latin American countries and Mexico and Central America that are migrating. Let's say you believe that immigration facilitates terrorism in the first place. The way in which it was addressed through things like harsher border policies or immigration or detention would not have prevented the route in which the people who are responsible for 9-11 entered the U.S. in the first place. I find it disingenuous to even try to combine those two. In the mid-1990s, the number of people held in immigration detention on any given given day was below 10,000. 
By 2019, that was above 50,000. Based on what we've seen with the detention numbers and deportation numbers and how it's been hypercriminalized, my analysis of it is that it was it was just another way to justify excluding migrants that were unwanted or undesirable in the eyes of people who are promoting these laws and policies and rhetoric during this time. Lilia Luciano, CBS News. Immigration has changed, so has airline travel. Remember going to the airport and greeting your loved ones right at the gate? I do. Well, the attack on America puts an end to that in short order. As part of our series on 9-11, correspondent Steve Futterman returned to LAX. 20 years ago, I was sent here to Los Angeles International Airport on the morning of September 11th. Three of the four deer were heading to Los Angeles. I remember going to the American Airlines terminal, speaking with people who were desperately hoping their loved ones had survived. Sadly, those loved ones did not survive. Today, they are remembered outside the LAX terminals. We're standing at a, at a flagpole that is a, um, a memorial for... Uh, the people that died on the three flights that were headed to Los Angeles on September 11th, 2001. Justin Urbachi is the airport CEO. Like almost everyone else who was alive in 2001, he remembers vividly where he was 20 years ago. I was actually working for United Airlines at the time, and I was in United, United Airlines headquarters in, uh, in Elk Grove, Illinois. And when I heard that um, one of our planes crashed into the World Trade Center, and it was, um, it was just you know, a shocking news for us. 9-11 changed air travel forever. This woman remembers what it was like to go to the airport before 9-11. It was straight in, straight out, no questions, no ID, just go in with family, sit and wait. But now it's, we have to stop on the, on the ground floor. Oh, so you clearly remember what it was like. Yes, I did. No security checks, nothing. Just straight going to your gate. I don't want to ask if you agree with it or not, but I mean, is it just this? these are the times we live in? These are the times that we live in, so it's best to do it this way and be safe rather than sorry later on. In fact, if you are in your mid-20s or younger, you almost certainly do not remember those days before security. Do you remember any of that with no security? I don't. Has there always been security when you've uh, dealt with planes? I'm too young. In those first few frantic days after 9-11, airports around the country scrambled to come up with a security plan. Again, Los Angeles International CEO Justin Urbachi. The first thing was that Airports were not built to facilitate these types of checkpoints before uh, you go airside. So the airports had to frantically figure out how to use their existing infrastructure and their existing layouts to suddenly accommodate um, this uh, extensive you know, security ch- screening that, uh, that, was gonna, that was being done by the TSA. So that was a, a feed in of itself, trying to figure that out. And, you know, to get the technology and to get the people up and running, uh, it was, you know, every airport was struggling to figure out how to get that done and how to get it done fast. And it's drastically altered what it's like to come to the airport. Especially when you're leaving your loved ones and you have to stop at the parking lot. And can and can only say goodbye at the parking lot. And before, it was they can come in, they could see you, they can look at the airplane, 
and stand there until they saw the airplane actually take off into the air. Simply put, it's not as fun as it used to be. CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg. The overall air travel experience has been downgraded. Today, air travel is more or less about the options we don't have anymore. The real difference is how much lower our expectations have become. For many of us, we no longer get excited about going to an airport. Instead, we're anxious and stressed about just getting through the airport. 20 years after 9-11, is it risky to fly? The numbers would indicate no. The FAA handles an average of around 45,000 flights every day. There is rarely even a minor incident. Is it safe to fly? Yes, I think it's I think it's very safe to fly. We've seen that ever since 9/11, we haven't had you know incidents and, and how many millions of people have been how many hundreds of millions of people have been flying since then. Uh, and so I, I think that it's it, it's very very safe. It will never be the way it once was. Going to the airport, like everything else, has changed because of 9/11. Steve Futterman, CBS News, Los Angeles International all Airport. In the arms of an angel. God bless America. God bless our law enforcement. And my husband, Stephen Goldstein. Steve, I still see your face every single day. And Harris, they are the living representation of all that was good in you. We the names you being read in New York City as that ceremony continues to mark 9-11, 20 years on. We'll have the latest news coming up and continue our coverage with correspondents Martha Teichner and Jeff Pegues. And we'll hear from other figures in the Bush administration. We'll get more from the 9-11 Museum in New York City. This is CBS News on the Hour, sponsored by Rocket Mortgage. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington paying tribute to those lost 20 years ago today. 125 people died at the Pentagon among the nearly 3,000 killed. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke earlier this morning. John, we must ensure that all our fellow Americans know and understand what happened here on 9-11 and in Manhattan and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. It is our responsibility to remember. In Shanksville, Pennsylvania. WSB reporter Robin Walensky is there. I think the 40 really embody what it is to be an American. Here today at the Shanksville service, Dale Nackey from Atlanta. He lost his brother, Louis Joseph Nackey II, on Flight 93. Putting differences aside, coming together to, for a common purpose and a common goal, uh, and taking action. They had 20 minutes to make a plan and execute on it. That's extraordinary. Even, even given the heightened stress of the circumstances, that is a monumental task. It just shows the mettle that we have as Americans. Robin Walensky for CBS News, Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Former President George W. Bush told mourners, As a nation, our adjustments have been profound. Many Americans struggled to understand why an enemy would hate us with such zeal. The security measures incorporated into our lives are both sources of comfort and reminders of our vulnerability. Back in New York City, the niece of William Russell Peterson at the podium. With a spirit and a personality that could fill a room and a smile that was infectious. We miss you every day and hold you close to our hearts. We know you're making the heavens smile and looking down on us, supporting us. 
The daughter of Ian Thompson spoke as those at the National September 11 Memorial held up pictures of lost loved ones and wiped tears from their eyes. You were a light for all of us, and you are so very missed. Even after 20 years, it feels surreal, and it's a difficult but beautiful thing to be here to honor you. President Biden, along with former Presidents Obama and Clinton and their wives, attended the ceremony there and observed a moment of silence to mark the time the first plane hit the World Trade Center. Rudy Giuliani, who was mayor of New York City at the time, was also at the ceremony. Former President Donald Trump was not. This is CBS News. This hour's newscast is presented by Rocket Mortgage. When you need cash out of your home and a simple way to get it, Rocket can. Twenty years later, America remembers 9-11. Good day once again from New York City. I'm Steve Kathan, CBS News. Today, our objective has been to honor the victims of 9-11, look at the war in Afghanistan, the effect security has had on our lives and the scars that remain today. A lot of ceremonies going on in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and at the Pentagon, and in New York City, where the World Trade Center towers fell on 9-11. CBS's Matt Piper has been there all morning. He joins us live. And Steve, the naming of names continues as family members usually read about 10 to 15 names of someone, and then at the end is when they name their loved one and usually give a line or two about what they remember about that person or what they want that person to know about what their life is like. The names have been being read for a few hours now, and this is something that happens every year, and it's just a way for family members to to show that their lives have continued and they want everyone to know the names of their family members who were lost on that day. But it's a gorgeous day here in Lower Manhattan, and its American flags are abound. There have been dignitaries who have come and gone here. There are still many, many family members, many holding loved ones' photos, just even in their hands. I've spoken to some here. One woman who I spoke to said that she, this is her first time that she's been here in 20 years, and she felt that this was the year to come here. But also, as we look up, we have to remember what's now standing here. There's One World Trade, which was formerly known as the Freedom Tower, which opened in 2014. It stands 1,776 feet tall. And it's a direct reference, of course, to the year that the Declaration of Independence was signed. Of course, there's also the museum here. There's a memorial with the cascading waterfalls. And One World Trade really is a symbolization of what still is. It's still office buildings. It's still people coming to work every day. It has 103 floors, 71 of which are office space. And the tower's observation deck was constructed with the memory of the Twin Towers in mind. That's because the deck itself begins at 1,362 feet, and then a glass part of it extends 1,368 feet. And that was the exact height of both the South and North Towers that came crashing down 20 years ago today. So there's, of course, a lot to remember from that day of what was lost, but much of the city has tried to rebuild, and that's just shown in a day like today when there's tears but also smiles the reflecting pools 
the names of people who are, of course, being read as we speak, but also that are seen around those reflecting pools, nearly 3,000 names, those with flowers on them, means that it's their birthday today, Steve. Matt Piper, thank you. In New York City, also with us, CBS's Cami McCormick, who has... 9-11 has shaped her life, quite frankly, since uh, it happened that day. She was in New York City. She's covered the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and she does a lot of her business now out of the Pentagon, has covered the military for us and has done so much this day means a lot to you and uh it means a lot to all of us yeah i, I think probably a lot of people are, are sort of struggling with what their emotions are today it, it would depend on your age where you were uh, what's happened in your life since 9 11 if you were alive that day and it it it's interesting to, to watch the different emotions of people that the and the different types of ceremonies we've seen the shanksville ceremony with former president george w bush where there was applause during his speech, you don't usually see that during 9-11 observances anymore. The Pentagon much more contained, much smaller, uh, with just just speeches by the defense secretary and the joint chiefs chairman. And, and then um, taps was played and then the families go off to the memorial for some private time. And then in New York, of course, a, a much different situation with the, the reading of the names. And there were so many former presidents there and politicians and so forth. So it's sort of an interesting thing to watch how each ceremony plays out differently in different places and and people absorb this differently cammy mccormick thanks very much cbs's martha teichner has reported on many things throughout her career she's taken the measure of the 9-11 attacks in many of her reports over the past two decades 20 years in time that has had an impact on so many Walking to work, and all of a sudden, I see a jet crash. Oh my god, another plane has just hit, it hit another building. For anyone who lived through it, 9 11 will always be one of those I will never forget where I was moments. Oh my goodness. Oh, my goodness, there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. Four crashed planes. <laughs> Nearly 3,000 dead. It's crazy. Nightmares. I'm again right here. After 20 years, the poison of the time-release horror is still as toxic as ever, is still spreading, is still history in the making. It's another Pearl Harbor for this country. You know, it's impossible not to compare this with the attack on Pearl Harbor. A Pearl Harbor moment with the expectation of a World War II kind of victory to follow? Was it World War II or Vietnam? Our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. With those words, President George W. Bush launched a war with no end date, taking the fight first to Afghanistan to topple the Taliban regime, which had harbored Al-Qaeda and 9-11 mastermind Osama bin Laden. We've watched 
in real time how that just ended in chaos. I was 21 years old on 9-11. Eager to right a wrong, Elliot Ackerman became a decorated Marine and intelligence officer and deployed five times to Afghanistan and Iraq. The September 11th happens, we're telling ourselves these stories about the Second World War, and we go to try to fight a war that's, that, that's in that type of a paradigm, the paradigm doesn't fit. Ackerman writes about war now, as a veteran who sees the last 20 years, as sacrifice squandered. There's an old bit of gallows humor uh, amongst Marines and soldiers. Knock, knock. Who's there? 9-11. 9-11 who? I thought you said you never forget. But that's pretty scary. That, yeah, that and that's we a bit of gallows humor when you're sitting there in Afghanistan in 2012 and 2013 getting shot at and, you know, you know the country doesn't care. The war on terror has been fought far away in Afghanistan and Iraq, but also in Syria, Pakistan and elsewhere, fought by an all-volunteer army, not an entire nation's sons and daughters. So invisible to most Americans. Although 7,000 service members have lost their lives. How do you fight a war on terror? You're basically fighting for something to not happen. Another 9-11 hasn't happened. In 2011, we got bin Laden. But here we are, at 20 years and counting. We first met Lee Ielpi five years ago, before the 15th anniversary, as he showed us his son's name on the memorial at Ground Zero to those who died. It's like holy water. Yeah, exactly. For Ielpi, the meaning of 9-11 is, and always has been, personal. About this place, on that day. My son Jonathan, New York City firefighter, called and said, turn the TV on. The first plane had hit. Jonathan said, they're sending us to the World Trade Center. I said, okay, buddy, be careful. And he said, okay. And that was the last time I spoke to my son. By the time the North Tower collapsed, Lee Ielpi, a retired firefighter himself, was racing to the site. I asked him, everybody, did you see my son? The answer was no, no, no. Then I started meeting dads. Did you see my son? No. So we walked together. Eventually, there were eight of us that would meet up every day. For nine months, together, they clawed through the rubble, searching for their firefighter sons. Lee Ielpi kept going back, even after Jonathan's body was recovered. 343 New York City firefighters died on 9-11. A symbolic stand-in for all of them? Jonathan Ielpi's battered gear. Lee Ielpi gave his son's coat and helmet to the 9-11 Tribute Museum, which he helped to found. So the next generation would understand. In 2021, do they? He thinks no. And I love talking to the young people. And I'll ask a student, or two, or three, or four, what does 9-11 mean to you? And the answer is, what is 
We checked. Only 14 states require 9-11 instruction. How it's taught, or if it's taught at all, is mostly up to individual districts and schools. One of the things that I discovered is that a lot of adults were still so traumatized, are still so traumatized by 9-11 that they don't want to talk about it. So in fact, when I was writing Towers Falling, it was a very hard journey. Young adult author Jewel Parker Rhodes sees herself among the writers and educators finally beginning to grapple with 9-11. If you look at 9-11 literature, we're building a canon that you can start in elementary and all the way up move to more increasingly complicated, well-told stories about the legacy of 9-11 and the time that we spent in Afghanistan. Towers Falling was one of two 9-11 books assigned as summer reading to middle school students at Queens Grant Community School in Mint Hill, North Carolina, outside Charlotte. How do you feel looking at these photos and hearing um, the bit of the story that we just read? For an entire week. My aunt was actually in New York working, and my mom was super scared because she couldn't talk to her. In nearly every class... I'm going to give you 10 minutes to build our little towers. Kids who weren't born on 9-11. My uh, uncle worked downtown and he had to run away from the building. Tried to grasp what happened. Because it's the 20th anniversary, that's why Queens Grant took its deep dive into 9-11 this year. Do you think your parents are ever going to forget... 9-11. What happens after your parents are gone? Who's going to remember? It makes me cry, but it's good. Lee Ielpi lives in Florida now. This memorial, not far from his home, has his son's name on it. It keeps them alive. It keeps Jonathan alive. But will names on granite and a mangled hunk of World Trade Center steel be enough? He can only hope so. Why does having steel bring meaning? Because we have nothing else. But this tells a story, a powerful story. A big forklift brought it out to us, and so secured it to the trailer, covered it with American flag, and started our journey home. Wasian, Ohio firefighter, now Chief Rick Sluter, had never been to New York City. When he and several colleagues went there to collect this nearly two-ton piece of North Tower steel from Hangar 17 at JFK Airport, where the awful wreckage of 9-11 was kept. You're in awe of, oh, you know, man, that's a, that's a big piece of steel. That's a big responsibility. How big a responsibility became clear as the men drove the beam across northern Ohio. You get groups of people around it in different towns we stopped in that would just stand and look at it, touch it, and hug it. They were along the, the route with flags, cheering, and uh, fire departments from that jurisdiction would escort us. And it was like that the whole way back to Wasion. People just say it was just really emotional, you know, seeing it, being able to touch the beam. They just want to walk up and uh, uh, feel it. Why did you feel so strongly about wanting a piece of that 
in Wauseon. Because it didn't just happen in New York or Washington, D.C. or Pennsylvania, it happened to the nation. And in this riven piece of steel, and the nearly 500 others like it all across the country, the violence of that day lives on. Correspondent Martha Teichner there. Let's go back to New York City and listen to some of the reading of the names on 9-11. Patrick Solas. Gregory Thomas Spagnoletti. Donald F. Spinpinato Jr. Thomas Spiraccio. John Anthony Spataro. Robert W. Spear Jr. Robert Spiesman. Maynard S. Spence Jr. George Edward Spencer III. And my uncle, James John Woods, we love and miss you every day. Give Grandma a hug for us. And my brother, Joseph Michael Giacconi. September 11th, we come here every year to come together as a nation. To, it's a useful way to mourn and grieve. And remember, the 20 years is a nice round number. But for me and other family members, it's another day, it's another month, it's another year. I still get angry at all the things my brother missed. Joe, we love you, and we miss you. A tribute there at Ground Zero in New York as the ceremony continues on 9-11 plus 20 years. Our coverage will continue after we get the latest. This is a CBS News special report. I'm Stacy Lynn. The Young People's Chorus of New York at a ceremony remembering 9-11, while many held up pictures of their loved ones who died. You're grieving with a nation, really, not just on your own. So that makes it difficult because at this time of the year, there's constant reminders of what happened. And the visuals are very hard to see, knowing that you lost a loved one. So it's, it's a very difficult time. Frank Siller's brother, Stephen's body was never recovered. When I walk by myself, I reflect on uh, on what my brother did and what I have to do and what the, my family has to do to make sure that we keep that great spirit of his alive. The president is now in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Later, he'll be back to Washington for a wreath laying at the Pentagon. CBS News Special Report. And our special coverage continues from CBS News. And as part of our series on 9-11, correspondent Jeff Pegues looks at Muslims in America 20 years after the attacks. 20 years later, Nihad Awad still remembers the feeling that he had on September 11, 2001. Right. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. I just was shaken to my core. Nihad was in the Washington area working at the Council on American-Islamic Relations. I just had a gut feeling that Muslims will be blamed. He says 9-11 changed the lives of Muslim Americans forever. And, And the Muslim community has been facing the brunt of this backlash and unfortunate and unfair 
association between um, you know a billion and a half people and the criminals uh, who who attacked us on on September 11. Still, he acknowledges the strength and resilience of the Muslim community. Today, we see. Uh, American Muslims elected uh, officials, but that doesn't mean that discrimination went away. Jeff Begay, CBS News, Washington. Joining us now is Christine French Cully, editor in chief and chief purpose officer at Highlights for Children. Highlights Magazine has been a part of kids' lives for generations. And Christine's new book is called Dear Highlights, What Can Adults Learn from 75 Years of Letters and Conversations with Kids? We're interested today in how children have reacted to the 9-11 attacks and what they've said about it. In terms of this anniversary, Christine, I'm interested in how children at the time of the attacks reacted 20 years ago. What were their fears? What were their feelings? 20 years ago, when the uh, terrorist attacks occurred, we started receiving letters and emails and uh, poems and drawings from children. They were uh, confused. They indicated that they were sad. They were angry. Uh, They were experiencing, I think, all of the same emotions that adults were experiencing. And they were reaching out to us, as they have done for 75 years, looking for uh, listening ear, and some guidance. And in what form did they do that? Uh, I'm sure a lot of questions were asked. Did they write essays about it, perhaps? Did they mention what they had talked about with their parents? We heard from kids, I would say, as young as five, probably five to 12. And they wrote us letters asking questions and just commenting on how, how sad they felt. They also sent us poems and drawings Uh, Many kids seem to intuit that their memory of this event needed to be captured in a deep, meaningful way. And I think that's why some kids who have a proclivity for that turn to poetry. So we have poems that describe their emotions, the happenings of the day, and even a poem a child wrote in memory of a cousin lost in the attack. And then, of course, some kids don't find uh, it easy to use words to express themselves. And so they turn to drawings. And we received many drawings of airplanes hitting the Twin Towers. Uh, We received several drawings of the Statue of Liberty with tears running down her cheeks. Many illustrations of the American flag. Kids like adults in that moment felt this surge of patriotism. The drawings usually arrived in an envelope alone with no commentary, uh, as did the poems. But we treated them as if they were letters that kids had written to us expressing sorrow or confusion So every poet and every artist received a customized letter in return, just as the kids did who sent letters. Are you able to show poems or a story or two that uh, might have come from that era? One of the poems that I think is most poignant came from a young girl named Vanessa. She did not give her age, but I think she was probably on the upper age range of um, our readership. She titled it The Dust of September. The Dust of September the dust, the smoke, the clouds from the dust of September, the sadness, the sorrow, the darkness from the dust of September, the pretty sights are gone, the love, the death from the dust of September, the families, the lives taken away from the dust of September. Our country is sad, but our country still stands in the dust of September. Our flag still waves, through the dust of September, 
We will never break. We will stand together through the dust of September. Wow. Powerful. Very, very much so. As far as the children of today, this did not happen during their lives. They've read about it, perhaps, or seen TV programs. What should parents need to have in a conversation with them, or how can they help, or how has your magazine helped if anyone has reached out? Yeah, we don't hear from kids today very much about this event, but we do hear from kids when these events happen. And even, I think, later when they read about them on anniversaries such as today, um, they they want to talk about it. And I think we as parents sometimes think that might not be a good idea. We want to protect our kids. But uh, parents should really check in with children in middle childhood because even though we think we're protecting them, they hear things. They catch snippets of the news. They talk to their friends. They hear other adult conversations. And what they know might not be accurate. We suggest that parents open up a conversation and then lean in and listen. Listen to what your children tell you they are feeling. Uh, Correct any misinformation they might have. Validate their feelings. Repeat back to them what they say to you so that they know they've been heard and empathize, and then reassure. Uh, Kids often don't want uh, a lot of details. They don't always expect us to have concrete answers in the moment. Often they're simply looking for reassurance. They want to know that they're going to be safe and cared for, and they want a listening ear. But we also want to offer kids um, suggestions of things they can do to help themselves manage their feelings of sadness. That's how we answer all the letters we receive from kids about tragedies such as this. We listen, we validate, empathize, reassure, and we try to empower them. And while 9-11 is, uh, was a big event in many respects for kids, now, as you say, it's a far off or a long ago news story. They've got things like COVID restrictions and daily live shooter drills that are a part of their lives that we couldn't have even thought about 20 years ago. That's right. Uh, And we hear from kids about all of those things. One of my favorite quotes came from Franklin D. Roosevelt, who said, a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor. The way kids build resilience is to experience some of these uh, difficult situations, uh, to make mistakes. And we, with the help of adults, with the guidance of adults, they can work through them and become stronger. They expect us to tell them the truth. But they, we must also remember to tell them not to fear the truth. We want to always leave kids with hope. And we want to make them understand that they have some agency, that there are some good things they can do. Yes, there's evil in the world. There's sadness in the world. But there's still a lot of good in the world. And there are a lot of people fighting for the good. They can be one of those people, too. Thanks very much, Christine French Cully of Highlights Magazine. Let's go back to New York City and listen to the names being read. Michael, you live on in the lives and hearts and minds of everyone whose lives you touched. May your memory be a blessing. American flags flying in the breeze. More people stepping up, removing masks to Thomas speak. F. Thurkoff, Jr., Leslie Ann Thomas. Brian Thomas Thompson. Clive Ian Thompson. Glenn Thompson. Nigel Bruce Thompson. 
Perry A. Thompson. Vanava Alexi Thompson. William H. Thompson. Eric Raymond Thorpe. Nicola Angela Thorpe. Tamara C. Thurman. Saul Edward Thierry Jr. John Patrick Tierney. Mary Ellen Tiesi. William Randolph Tiesi. Kenneth Tejan. Stephen Edward Teague. Scott Charles Timmis. Michelle E. Tinley. Jennifer M. Tino. Robert Frank Tapaldi. And let's not forget the people who have been sickened by 9-11. More than 111,000 people are in the World Trade Center Health Program. That gives free medical care to people. The U.S. has spent $11 billion on care for those people up to now. That's more than what was spent on the 9-11 families. This is a CBS News special report. I'm Allison. Among the ceremonies going on across the nation marking 20 years since the September 11th terror attacks changed the U.S. forever, retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Marilyn Wills at the Pentagon talked about saving five people that day. She said at one point she couldn't go any further because she had nylons on. And the nylons were sticking to her legs. They were melting on her legs. I told her, get on my back. I'll carry you. In Shanksville, Pennsylvania, former President George W. Bush Americans were vulnerable, but not fragile, that they possess a core of strength that survives the worst that life can bring. In New York City, tears and hugs as the names of those killed at the World Trade Center were read. Dad, we miss you every day. CBS News Special Report. Twenty years later, America remembers 9-11. Special coverage from CBS News. I'm Steve Kathan. Let's go back to New York City. Matt Piper's been following the events that have happened there today. President Biden was there for a while. And they've been reading names since 8.46 in the morning when the first plane hit the tower. Hey, Matt. Hey there, Steve. Reading names and also had those six moments of silence earlier today. The crowds have certainly trickled a little bit, but there's still a good maybe four or 500 people here, family members, FDNY and MyPD members in their uniforms and also military members in their uniforms. Uh, the day has just gotten more and more pretty as it's gone on. There's now a lot of sun here, and the trees, these green white oak trees, there are 400 of them that kind of help shade this entire area. In another part of this whole memorial is of course those reflecting pools and i'm looking at them now and there are family members standing around them and probably looking for their loved one's name which of course has been here for about 10 years now but it's still a day for just them there's no tourists here there's no other people besides the family members of those who were killed on that day this is a day for them to see those names to read the names to hear the names and to also be up close with someone like a President Biden or a former President Clinton. And, and just to be among loved ones. There's something to be said, though, for those who have been reading the names, especially the younger people. You've seen some maybe 20, 21, 22-year-olds up there saying something about a family member. They have been so eloquent, Steve, 
when they've spoken. It's just really been remarkable to hear some of these people speak up there as they read the names and they continue to read the names, Steve. Matt Piper thanks. Also at the Pentagon, ceremonies to mark 9-11 and the attack on the Pentagon. CBS's Cammie McCormick. We heard from top defense officials. Yeah, we did. General Mark Milley, the Joint Chiefs Chairman, he paid tribute to those who lost their lives that day, 184. Uh, that includes the passengers on the flight and those in the Pentagon. He he specifically, though, talked about the U.S. service members who have worked to protect this country since the 9-11 attacks, including the 13 who were lost just two weeks ago in Afghanistan. And he said their deaths would come as we close this terrible chapter in our nation's history. He said for two decades, armed forces and intelligence services have protected this nation. And he called it an incredibly emotional exhausting and trying several years and he, he also spoke to veterans who are feeling conflicted right now because of the images that we've seen come out of afghanistan over the past several weeks he said he, he knows they feel anger sorrow and sadness but they should also know that they did their duty and their service matters so it was it, it was sort of a, a ceremony dedicated not only to the innocent civilians who lost their lives but also to the many many service members who have died on the battlefields Cammy, thanks. Our White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy had a chance to visit with Ann Compton, the longtime ABC News White House correspondent. She was on pool duty on 9-11, the person collecting information and details to give to all radio and TV networks. Thanks, Steve. want to turn to my friend and mentor and former colleague Ann Compton, who for more than four decades was a White House correspondent for ABC News. And on 9-11-2001, Anne was in Sarasota, Florida. She traveled with President Bush to Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska, on a very long, stressful, and trying day for herself, her colleagues, and, of course, for the President of the United States. Anne, thank you for being with us. Stephen, thank you. So let's help our listeners understand. You were one of 13 reporters who were with the president of the United States in Sarasota, Florida, as part of the travel pool, we call it, the small contingent of reporters who represent the broader press. You were serving that day as the radio network pooler. It was a routine trip. It was kind of boring. The president was talking once again about his education program. And it was the last stop. We woke up in Sarasota. The president was going to go into a second grade classroom to listen to the kids talk about their vocabulary drills. And then he was going to give a speech in the cafeteria, and he was flying home to Washington. And I stood at the back of the classroom when the president uh, was interrupted by his chief of staff, who came into the classroom, whispered to him, and stepped back. And Stephen, I was shocked because nobody interrupts a president, even in front of a, a classroom of second graders. Andy Card told us later, months later, what he whispered to the president was a second plane has hit the second tower. America is under attack. You were witness to George W. Bush getting that information. You saw that he continued to maintain his composure, continued on with the event. What were you aware of at that moment? We knew so little in the classroom because President Bush hated it when our cell phones interrupted him. We had heard there was a plane crash, but we didn't know really anything about it. First thing we all thought of was, oh, a little sightseeing plane? Why do they let those fly around New York? The president looked up 
to the back of the room when he heard the whisper. And the gravity of his expression stunned me. I wrote it down in my reporter's notebook. So I snuck over to the side of the press pen and I caught Andy Card's eye. He was over at the side of the room. And I made with my hand the sign of an airplane going down. Andy Card nodded and put up two fingers. That's the only indication I had that one plane might be an accident. Two planes could be nothing but disaster. Chilling. So uh, George W. Bush finishes the event with the students and leaves the room. What happens next? All hell broke loose. The president was in a side room being shown on the television the repeated pictures of that second plane hitting. And he was trying to reach officials in Washington, but it was tough because people were scrambling there as well. The president didn't want to scare the children, but he did go in the cafeteria. He spoke for one minute. He said an apparent terrorist attack. I must return to Washington. And he asked for a moment of silence. Now, George W. Bush said that he was returning to Washington, but that happened. We raced hell-bent for leather from the school to the airport. In fact, the only way I could report to my fellow reporters is on my little Motorola flip phone, open it up, and I called ABC News and They put me immediately on the air with Peter Jennings, who was doing live coverage. And I am dictating the president's heading to the airport. We're moving at high speed. And I realized in the back of the press van, I was hearing my own voice coming through the radio station to which it was tuned. We get to the airport within minutes. The Secret Service convinced that whatever attack is happening elsewhere in the world, George Bush is actually the target. We get on the airplane. The door slams shut. We take off very steeply. And then the Pentagon was hit. And there was no way that aircraft was going to fly anywhere close to Washington, D.C. What we went through from that moment on was a series of scares, threats, what turned out to be false alarms. The White House switchboard thought it got an alarming call saying Angel is next. Angel is the not well-known code name for Air Force One. And so Air Force One rose to 44,000 feet. But the bad part for President Bush, who is on board and demanding to go back to Washington, no matter what is going on, his communications got weaker and weaker the higher the plane went. And in his frustration, he could not reach the people underground at the White House or at the Pentagon. At that point, Ari Fleischer, the press secretary, came and gave us two important pieces of news. One, the president was going to land in Louisiana at Barksdale Air Force Base to refuel. And number two, the president of the United States is being evacuated, and that's off the record. It took my breath away. You cannot say that the president of the United States is being evacuated for his safety during a national crisis and not be able to report it. But then I look down. I'm at 44,000 feet with nothing but a useless cell phone. A fateful thing happened at Barksdale. Uh, The decision was made to essentially uh, toss people off the plane, uh, including members of Congress, White House staffers and members of the press. I had a deep fear as we circled for hours that the White House would decide to 
drop all of us off the trip and just allow what they call the secure package, the president and his closest aides and secret service to proceed. And I argued to both the chief of staff and the press secretary, you need at a time of crisis, the independent voice of reporters to assure the American people and the world that the American government has not been crippled by these attacks. Perhaps because this was the sixth president I had covered for ABC News, I was allowed board as the only broadcaster. On the flight back from Offutt Air Force Base to Washington, my understanding is President Bush came back to the press cabin to talk to you. And he came to the door of the press, the press room and waved away our reporter's notebooks. He didn't want to talk on camera. But he said something like, we're going to get those thugs. Ann Compton, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. And with us now is CBS News White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. After that discussion with Ann Compton, the great Ann Compton, he is joining us live now because he is covering the current president of the United States, Joe Biden. He has had a busy day going from one 9-11 ceremony to another. Stephen, you're in Shanksville now? We are in Shanksville, Steve, at the Flight 93 National Memorial. And I can't help but think, as I listened to that interview we did, with Ann a couple of weeks back, how she served as the radio pool reporter on 9-11-2001. 20 years later, I'm in that seat today. And uh, I, I think, as, as you heard, Ann Compton reflect upon the need to have independent eyes and ears on the president at all times so that the American people and the world can understand that the American government, the head of the executive branch, uh, be aware of his whereabouts and conditions at all times. Right now, this commander-in-chief is meeting with families here at Shanksville, Pennsylvania, he just laid a wreath with the First Lady at the Memorial Wall, a tribute to the, the, the heroes of United Flight 93, which crashed in this field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, 20 years ago today. The president, after laying the wreath with his wife, walked what they call the sacred ground. That's the area of impact. And the president's right now meeting with families here. The president was, 20 years ago, a senator, of course, and he was on his way to Washington, D.C., on an Amtrak train from Wilmington, Wilmington, Delaware, when he writes in his 2008 book that he received a call from his wife, who was watching television. Dr. Jill Biden said that she saw the second plane hit the second tower. Joe Biden uh, wrote in his book that he wanted to head immediately to the Senate floor to demonstrate, again, that he's functioning. But as he uh, walked out of Union Station in Washington, a Capitol police officer told him that the Capitol was being evacuated and that he could not go to the Senate floor. At the moment, a plane was headed for Washington. It's believed that plane was United Flight 93. Stephen Portnoy, he's with President Biden in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. They made their first stop of the day at Ground Zero in New York. 20 years after the 9-11 attacks, increased security is a part of our lives nearly every single day in some fashion or another. CBS's Peter King is in Orlando. I'm Peter King in Orlando. Whether you're attending a concert or a Magic NBA game here at Amway Center, the rules have kept changing since 9-11. So the list has gotten longer through the years because somebody tried to bring something in and it gets added to the list. Alan Johnson is Orlando's chief venues officer. He says the technology has gotten much better in the past two decades, but it's still the brain that counts. Well, sometimes you have to think like a bad guy to see what they're going to do. And that's one of the things we learn is to think outside the box. Johnson says his staff is always watching for things like people who look like they've got something to hide 
and he says chances are they'll be caught on video. You really have started looking at places you might not have thought about before, and you know, we have cameras and like things in, you know, in the dumpster. Nearby Camping World Stadium hosts three college bowl games every year. It's also hosted the last four NFL Pro Bowl games. That brings in the league and its own rules. And we go through different scenarios of what could occur during that event. And so we actually run a tabletop exercise where we discuss why we did something or how it happened, what we should have done differently. And he says very rarely have they had anyone try to bring in weapons at the stadium or at Amway. It's usually if somebody has a pocket knife, they forget about it. Maybe they're, they work as an electrician or something like that. A few miles away... These Seminole High School music students and thousands of others are being kept safe by security that started changing two years earlier after Columbine. It was a huge uh, game changer. Seminole County Sheriff Dennis Lima is a former school resource deputy. He says around the country... What happened after 9-11 was these, at least the ones that were uh, equipped and positioned to do it, created domestic security divisions where we started to then uh, combine resources, work with not only our, our uh, local resources, but regional assets. We've always looked at our school campus as one of the more vulnerable targets in our community, right along with train stations and water treatment plants and all of those things. Lima says it used to be a lot easier to walk into a school. Walk in, you see a receptionist, you say I'm here to you know, deliver cookies to Johnny or Sue's classroom, and you could walk back there and, and, and not be confronted by anyone. And, and clearly that has changed not only in practice but in the in the brick and mortar development of schools. In the past decade there have been several mass school shootings, the worst being Sandy Hook and Parkland in South Florida. While many people have said teachers should carry guns, Lima says no. I think arming teachers is a is a bad idea. Um, I think that it requires more than just showing proficiency in shooting targets to evaluate scenarios and situations. One thing teachers do have is a panic app if there's trouble. We were one of the first uh, jurisdictions in the country, quite frankly, to to create a, a, a technical solution that gave the power uh, to every single faculty member and staff member that if they saw one of five different emergency categories going on, school shooting and fire and other safety concerns being, being just, just a handful of them, that they could push a button on their on their mobile. The Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Act followed the Parkland shootings here in Florida, providing more money for security and the requirement of more school safety officers. Right. Lima says the best intelligence, though, often comes from outside the security corps. It's a child who is properly informed and properly trained, who sees something out of the ordinary that either calls themselves or calls an anonymous hotline that typically allows us the information to to uh, follow up on. He says students and parents now realize that safe schools are their responsibility too. For the CBS News Weekend Roundup, I'm Peter King reporting from Orlando and Seminole County, Florida. With us now is Alice Greenwald. She's president and CEO of the National September 11th Memorial and Museum in New York City. Certainly, it took a lot to get the museum up and running. For people who haven't been there to experience it, can you describe what's important for us to know about it? Well, this is a site of memory. It's a site of history. And it's a place to be inspired. 
uh, we welcome the public to observe the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks by visiting the museum and the memorial, um, by learning the story. You know, there's an entire generation of young people who don't have a memory of this event. And for them, it is history to be learned. And we see it as our um, privilege and responsibility to make sure that they understand um, uh, what happened at this site uh, and at two other sites in the United States 20 years ago, but that they also learned how we responded, which was with hope and compassion, unity and resilience. And perhaps no one, Alice, better than you to give us a visual outside as, as you approach. Give us a sort of panoramic for people to picture what it's like there. Certainly there are different parts of it all that come together. Oh, absolutely. So the memorial, of course, eight acre park. It's a plaza with 400 swamp white oak trees. But the centerpiece of the plaza are these two um, memorial pools, which occupy the footprints of the Twin Towers. So it's the voids where the towers once stood. And arrayed around the pools are the names of 2,983 individuals um, inscribed into the bronze parapets of the pool. Uh, It's it's magnificent. The waterfall drops um, 30 feet. Uh, The sounds of the city are are gone. You hear only the sound of the rushing water. uh, And it is contemplative and spiritual. We also have a section of the memorial that we call the Glade, which has six large stone uh, monoliths that um, seem to reach up out of the ground and push up toward the sky. And this is an area that is about... um, Uh, commemorating those who have continued to suffer and die from 9-11 related illnesses, so many of whom were the uh, incredibly um, diligent and and hardworking uh, rescue and recovery workers um, at Ground Zero and the other uh, two attack sites. So we honor their service and their sacrifice as well. The museum um, sits below the plaza. The plaza is the roof of a 110,000 square foot museum where you make a journey um, to bedrock. You go to the foundation level of the World Trade Center site in what I would call a site of urban archaeology. You are surrounded by the remnants of the place you are in. And it is within that foundational level that we uh, present our exhibitions, um, a core historical exhibition that tells the story of the day, what led up to it, and the immediate aftermath, a core memorial exhibition, which introduces you to these nearly 3,000 individuals um, who are brought to you, their lives are brought to you in the words of people who knew them, their loved ones who tell wonderful stories uh, of the people they now um, have lost. Uh, we, um, the experience is this interesting combination of exhibition, archaeology, and inspiration. Uh, I think it's a very moving experience to hear in the words of people who were there, what that day was like. It's also um, a magnificent experience of just the the human impulse to help one another. Uh, So we tell both stories. We tell the story of what happened, what it was like on that day, a day witnessed at the time by 2 billion people, a third of the world's population which now we are bringing to a generation that does not have that memory of witness, but can witness in the space of the museum. And interesting, someone of my generation who would go would 
be brought back to that time and that day, having experienced it. But for so many young people who go there, it's really a first chance to, to grasp that history. That's exactly right. And, and the way we present the history is really through a human lens. This happened to people just like us. You know, when you go into our memorial exhibition and you see nearly 3,000 portraits of people ages two and a half to 85, you know, from every imaginable um, ethnic group, from every faith tradition, from every sector of the economy, yeah, you realize this happened to people just like us. And it is an unacceptable form of, um, uh, of, of grievances. So, so uh, we start there. We say this is a human story. And you are celebrating the lives of people, not for how they died, but for how they lived. Uh, and this is a memorial about exactly that. Uh, we also look at the courage and the in, in, incredible selflessness of the individuals, uh, both responders who went to the aid of others in a moment of unimaginable distress. Uh, and, um, you know, this is a story as much about the horrors of that day, which will forever be part of American history, as it is about the generosity of spirit with which we met those challenges. Alice, I'm curious how the pandemic has affected the museum. You launched a PSA campaign over the summer, I know. You know, the pandemic um, obviously affected everyone. <laughs> um, and like every cultural organization, certainly in New York City and, and many around the nation, you know, we did have to close for an extended period of time um, due to lockdown. And uh, that had an impact on our, you know, um, our earned income through admissions and our financial uh, status. But, you know, we've reopened and we are we are in business and we are welcoming the public and we are educating and we're um, producing uh, downloadable exhibitions so that kids around the country uh, can visit neighborhood libraries and 11 now. Uh, so um, the PSA is really about that message that there's a generation now that needs to know what happened that does not have a memory of 9-11. And the 9-11 Memorial and Museum is where they can come uh, to learn the history, to be informed citizens as they grow up, uh, but also to be instructed in our human capacity for resilience and hope in the face of adversity. Um, and that, you know, one of the great legacies of 9-11 is how we came together as a nation at that moment. There was a sense that we were all in it together and we cared for strangers. Um, there's, a, there's a line in our new campaign that I love, which is, remember when two towers fell and we rose as one. And to me, that says it all. We knew how to come together then. We know how to come together now. Alice Greenwald, thanks very much. The museum is quite a place. If you get a chance to visit, you should. CBS's Cammie McCormick is with us again. And uh, this is a tough day, no matter if it's the 20th anniversary or the 2nd or the 24th. It's always a tough day to relive those moments on 9-11 and to think about those who lost someone very close and to think about what we've been through since that time. 
Yeah, but I think this anniversary was a little different in that it may be remembered for the calls for unity for Americans to come together again like they did in the days after the attacks. We've grown apart politically and otherwise. And what was once a common purpose sort of disintegrated over the years. And we heard from, you know, from President Biden to, to George W. Bush on the importance of this country standing together as a nation against future threats because they're evolving and they're growing And so many lives have been sacrificed already in New York, at the Pentagon, in Shanksville, and on the battlefields around the world, in Iraq and Afghanistan and beyond. So I think one of the things many people in other countries have envied most about the U.S. is our freedoms and our democracy and our common purpose and our identification as Americans. And I think going forward, protecting that could be the best way to honor those who lost their lives because of these attacks. And, Cammy, uh, certainly your contributions throughout the years have uh, helped inform CBS Radio listeners about the wars in Afghanistan, the events on 9-11 itself. Certainly your contributions have been unbelievably valuable to all of us. Those who saw the attack on 9-11, whether it was in a studio and reporting on it as I was or Cammy down on the World Trade Center sites are never going to forget. 20 years later, those images are still very strong and disturbing. And a harsh reality check that the world, for all its beauty, is a dangerous place. For this country, it ushered in a war, and thousands died, thousands more sacrificed, many with their lives to protect us and carry out justice. I recall a small gathering in my town in New Jersey just after 9-11, to mourn the victims, light candles, and shed tears. With neighbors I knew, and with total strangers, it was a time of togetherness that we thought would unite this country forever, but it was not to be. Former President Bush and Vice President Harris talked about that today. We need unity. Too often we repeat the same mistakes of history. 9-11 should be a reminder that we can come together, and to honor the victims of that awful day, we should strive to do it. Thanks for joining us. For our entire CBS News radio team, I'm Steve Kathan, CBS News. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick... From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free, starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.